Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. A little bit of a grab bag episode as we are in between a couple of things. There's been some new video game releases like Resident Evil Village that we might talk a little bit about. Um, and there's been a couple of pieces of news and just some life stuff. But yeah, um, we're kind of busy planning on some stuff for the next couple weeks. So this might be a smaller episode, but nice fun check-in. We haven't had actually like a news-centric outline in a while. This isn't a huge outline, but it might be kind of fun to talk about. We've got some Marvel news. We've got some Dragon Ball news. That's always fun. And uh, we'll see where we go with it. Sean, how are you yes. doing? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, it's fun to have a, a grab bag episode. So yeah, because I've been... I've been hard at work playing the Yakuza, and I have also been playing the Resident Evil uh, since. I've been doing the same thing with Resident Evil 8 that I did with 7, where I've just been playing it for like two hours after dinner so that I just play it when it's dark outside. So I've put yeah. almost exactly six hours into it because I've played it two hours Thursday, Thursday night, two hours Friday night, and two hours Saturday night. And it's very good. You have played more than me then because I have only played about four hours. I've, I've gotten through Castle Domestric. You, yeah, Domitresk. <laughs> Castle Domitresk. That's where I stopped. I did not get to play it. I'm playing it on PC and they didn't have any kind of pre-release. So I didn't even have it downloaded until Friday and then I was busy and I wound up playing it Saturday, most of the day yesterday um, while doing some other stuff. So I'm sure we will talk about that spoiler free later because mm -hmm. um, we're not done with it yet. So um, we're not going to talk about it in too many spoilers. Um, and I also want to talk about, I have, I've have i played some other Resident Evil stuff. I played Resident Evil 5 co-op with my brother. And I got to I gotta get some stuff off my chest about that. So we'll okay. talk about that too. But we'll save all the video game stuff for later. How about that, right. Sean? We'll just throw that at the end. All right. Um, well, that's all the stuff I have that is, is that's the only <laughs> things I've done related to like the podcast this week is um, playing Yakuza and playing Resident Evil. Yes. So, a uh, little tiny piece of housekeeping is just the YouTube channel keeps chugging away. I've got a lot more stuff up there. Season 7 of the podcast is now complete on the on the channel. That's 2018. So, I'm kind of moving up and getting recent episodes up now. But anyway, uh, subscribe to the podcast YouTube channel. That's my weekly reminder for that. But then I have a couple pieces of stuff, Sean. Mm -hmm. um, and I have to start with an incredibly exciting piece of life stuff. That I announced on Twitter this week, but uh, I am so excited about. So in the fall uh, at the University of Iowa, I'm actually teaching a couple of classes um, and like solo teaching, not just being a teaching assistant on, which is something I've been very excited for. But one of those is we have a one credit hour sort of mini course we do at the University of Iowa's film department called Film Club. And it's just a weekly screening series where you come and you watch a movie every week and then there's like a 30 minute hour long discussion. Um, and that's the whole course. And it's for people who just need an extra credit, um, who need that one extra credit hour to graduate or just to, just to have fun and get a credit because it's mm -hmm. a free movie. Well, the free you're paying for college, but you know what I mean. Um, and it's in our nice screening room and all of that. Uh, and I have mentioned, I think I mentioned this on Weekly Suit Gundam a couple years ago because Weekly Suit Gundam has been running a while now, that my like goal as a scholar in life was to get to teach this fucking film club series and do a series about giant robots so that I could show the Mobile Suit Gundam movie trilogy, the original 1979 Gundam trilogy, on a yes. big screen. Yeah, we definitely had this conversation on the podcast where we talked about that trilogy of movies. Sean, it's happening. Mm -hmm. 
It's happening. If you saw my Twitter announcement, it is a Like, it's not just happening. It's official. You can go register for that class if you're a student because it is on the registrar's website. Uh, I have on the registration website of the University of Iowa a film series called Giant Robots on Screen in which movies mentioned include Mobile Suit Gundam, Neon Genesis Evangelion, uh, and Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla. Mm -hmm. Sean... Our stupid little podcast has now affected a course at uh, one of America's large public universities. It's it's very good. Yeah, it's. I feel like my master plan, the whole reason why I created Weekly Suit Gundam in the first place is is it's creeping out of where we're going to change anime culture in the United States um, by by teaching teaching the proper the proper shit. Watch watch your goddamn Gundam. <laughs> We're gonna watch some goddamn Gundam. It's I'm really excited, and you know I'll uh, I'm still working on the actual like final screening list because there's stuff. Um, it's 15 weeks. There's some weeks I'm filling in that I still have to like watch stuff for, um, and and I'm thinking about different movies that I might use. Some of the ones I mentioned earlier are like definite locks that I know will be there. Like holy fucking shit! Yes, we're doing Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. It's a series called Giant Robots on Screen. Of course, we're doing that. There's a lot of kaiju ones like that I could choose from. I was also thinking about King Kong Escapes, but I think if I'm limiting it to one kaiju movie, it will be Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. Um, and then there's just a bunch of other stuff. It's going to be structured sort of as Mecha will be kind of half the class, and then I've got something I'm roughly calling Robo Camp, which will include your kaiju, your Transformers. Um, some of your other like American movies, possibly if I can find a good movie version of it, something either Ultraman or Super Sentai or something like that, which also includes large robots. And then finally, sort of your more sober down to earth, uh, robot stuff, uh, like the Iron Giant, uh, and some of its like predecessors, like the day the earth stood still. And we might even throw Metropolis in there, not a giant robot movie, but the robot that looms largest over all mm -hmm. sci-fi. Uh, and and is a fitting antecedent to a lot of things. So um, and I'll I'm sure I'll I'll program something uh, around that too on online for people who want to like play along with the the silly class I'm teaching. So yeah, um, I'm very excited, Sean. I I can't believe I'm actually getting to do this. Yeah, if I could 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 suggest a couple of things of just just ideas. Uh, of course you so. can. One hundred percent. Yeah, to wield my Godzilla expertise. If you want to hit some Ultraman esque stuff, but want to also have some more Godzilla on there, Godzilla versus Megalon has Jet Jaguar in it. You, I, I have that on, on the list. Yeah, very good. Um, and then, like, I think it would be interesting to do one of the later Mechagodzilla movies, just as a compare and contrast with the role of Mechagodzilla, because that's the Showa era movies are the only movies in which Mechagodzilla is presented directly as an antagonistic force. And in God Mechagodzilla 2, and then the Millennium ones against Mechagodzilla and Tokyo SOS. Um, God Mechagodzilla is something created by humanity as a mecha to fight against Godzilla. So picking one of those, either two or probably Godzilla against Mechagodzilla would also be an interesting one. That would be, in, that would be I think, an interesting companion to watching the first one. Yes, we'll have to see. I mean, I, I'm trying to cover a lot of ground with like too few weeks, so we will have to see, but I will keep that in mind, absolutely. And Could Godzilla be like extra credit or, you know, like that's an, true, an that's essay true. topic or something, say it's like, hey, if you want to do a little bit extra, you watch one of these other Mechagodzillas. Yeah, there's no other assignments in this in this because it's like a, this, this little class, but um, I will definitely keep that in mind and i had megalon on my uh on my radar because of jet jaguar because i he has a song and you know yes. that's that's the best uh anything else i should be thinking of sean i'll tell you for other mecha things 
if I'm covering my bases, I know, like, we're going to do an EVA thing. I'm planning on doing basically a version of, um, in 1998, they did a theatrical presentation called Revival of Evangelion, which was a combination of the recap movie Death, True, and End of Evangelion. And I've basically found a fan reconstruction of that that we're going to do. Um, and I am, I am excited for the people who have not seen Evangelion, and I'm going to throw them in the goddamn deep end with that, and it's going to be fun. Yeah, so you're not um, even doing, like, the first Rebuild movie. You're, you're just going no. full on. Let's just get the full, full sh- shebang in the most concentrated form possible. That's my plan. Maybe I'll look at the Rebuild movies and see if, like, one of them on their own is good enough for what I'm thinking of, but we'll see we'll see it could be we, we i might do rebuild one we'll see um and because because actually the way i'm structuring this is we're going to do eva first and then kind of go back to gundam and part of my argument is Eva's what's more familiar over in the west and like because we're also going to look at like pacific rim um mm-hmm. which has a lot of eva influence i think in how they portray the piloting and stuff um but like here we're going to go back to the og with gundam a little later um so that, there's, that's a plan. Pat Labor, we're going to do one of those. Probably yeah. Pat Labor 2. Um, Got to do something by Mamoru Oshii. Um, and yeah, so we'll see. Like like again, I get the, the, the whole class can't just be Mecha because I, I guess I, I, could, I could do that, but that's not what they were really looking for. So I mean, it's, it, it is... It should be a little it, broader. It's going to end up being skewed because there are a lot more... Japanese yes. giant robots on screen than there are American like like because yeah when you because you a while ago kind of like tweeted out like kind of teasing this almost um of like suggestions of giant robot movies and I was sitting there when I had seen that tweet and was thinking that like I can think of a lot of Japanese ones I can think of yes. very few it was like Iron Giant and Metropolis was one I thought of and I was like I've been having a hard time thinking of other giant robot American movies which feels like a, a gap in American filmmaking. Why do we have so few giant robots? But we were getting more and more. Like, you know, we're, we're doing this Gundam movie from Legendary. Um, we just had Mechagodzilla in a Godzilla movie that's in theaters right now. You know, Pacific Rim is recent. Um, clearly, like, it, the influence is there, and that's part of why I'm doing this series. So, yeah, about half the course is going to be Mecha, and then the second half is two other units on sort of other stuff. Um, with the with things like Transformers and Mechagodzilla are kind of a bridge to that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but and the Transformers movie we're doing is 1986 Transformers with fucking Weird Al Yankovic on the soundtrack because hell to the fuck to the yeah, that's a great movie. Yeah, you'll have to give them all the context of well, you see, they they the reason why every major character in this movie is brutally murdered is so that they can make new toys. <laughs> Um, so it's just imagine yourself being an eight-year-old watching this film and yes. being like, oh, I guess I got it. Optimus Prime is on the outside. I guess I got to get Rodimus now. Rodimus Prime. No, yep. we got Rodimus. No, no. <laughs> they, how long did it take them to bring back Optimus? Like half a season? Yeah, it was pretty yeah. immediately. They're like, well, let's bring Optimus Prime back because it's Optimus fucking Prime. Yes. Um, anyway, so that's my fun life announcement. I'm also planning a... My, my other course that's more serious and is about film theory, and that's going to be a whole thing. And maybe I'll talk about that at some point. Um, but yes, uh, I just wanted to say that because it is relevant to the interests of this podcast, uh, and it amuses me that, that this is happening. Um, but the other thing I wanted to talk about, Sean, is just I've gone and seen a shit ton of movies um, because I can, I'm vaccinated and I can see movies again. Mm-hmm. And honestly, honestly, even if you're not vaccinated, there's so few people going to the movies right now, at least where I am around, that if you go at the right time of day, you might just have the theater to yourself. Um, 
Yeah. So anyway, um, but I have seen uh, in the last two weeks, like after Mugen Train, the Demon Slayer movie, which was my first time back in a theater, I've gone to see Nobody, the movie with Bob Odenkirk. I'll talk about that in a second. They're doing this Fast and Furious uh, free Friday screening, if you're not following that, um, because F9 is coming out like in July, I think. Uh, for the next eight weeks, well, last two weeks and the next six weeks, Universal is putting all the original movies back in theaters for free. Uh, so I went to see Fast and Furious 1 last uh, two weeks ago. This week was Too Fast, Too Furious. I have also seen this year's Best Picture winner, Nomadland, with Frances McDormand. And yesterday I went to see Godzilla vs. Kong because I wanted to make sure I saw that in a theater before it goes off screens. Although, I don't know if that movie... That movie's just going to, I think, play in theaters as long as people want it there because like, there's no other major competition yet mm -hmm. and it's been doing really well. There were actually a good number of people in the theater when I went to see it. Um, that movie came out at the perfect fucking time to clean up on both theatrical and streaming. Like, what a win that was for everyone involved. Um, but I want to talk about some of these movies. So first off, nobody... Everyone should see this because it's fucking great, but you should especially see it if you like John Wick. And if you don't like John Wick, you're stupid. Um, so everyone really should see this. Um, Nobody is written by Derek Kolstad, who is the writer of all three John Wicks. Uh, it's produced by uh, David Leach, who co-directed the first John Wick. It's got a bunch of the John Wick people involved. And it's directed by Ilya, long Russian last name that I'm not going to try to pronounce. Okay. Um, but he directed the movie Hardcore Henry, which some people might know, which is the first-person shooter movie where it's all done like a first-person shooter. I don't love Hardcore Henry as a movie, but like as a technical experiment, it's really quite interesting and accomplished. Um, but this is a, a new movie by him, and it stars Bob Odenkirk. And the best way I can describe this movie, Sean, is it is like a more down-to-earth, gritty version of John Wick, or a sillier, less grounded version of David Cronenberg's A History of Violence. It is somewhere in the middle of that sweet spot, and I hope that sounds good to people, because it is very good. Um, Bob Odenkirk plays a guy who's like an accountant. He's a boring dude. Um, some robbers come in and kind of bust into his house, and he does not act because he knows they're not actually a threat. Uh, and then his family is kind of mad at him. It's sort of like the History of Violence situation, although he doesn't get violent. And then he kind of like feels emasculated and kind of goes out and starts sort of picking fights until he accidentally picks a fight with the Russian mob, a la John Wick. Um, and then everyone's after him. And you find out he was like this, he's like super assassin. Not like John Wick, like super like uh, sophisticated, but like who the US government would call to just like kill scores of people. Um, and, and that's the movie. It's a fairly familiar shape, but it is just done so well. Bob Odenkirk, who I think we have learned over the last 10 years between like Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and a lot of the other stuff he's done is just like Fargo. It's just one of the like most versatile, rangiest actors I've ever seen. Like he can play so many different things and he's genuinely very, very good in this. And like the way he plays the physicality of this guy who is just like addicted to violence is really compelling. Um, it's very fun. The action is great. It is. Um, it has that similar like rhythmic sensation of like a John Wick. It's not as balletic and like dance like as John Wick is, I would say. Um, but it's really, really well choreographed. Um, great cast. You also have Christopher Lloyd, the Christopher Lloyd, Doc Brown, as his retiree dad who lives in a retirement home but also can tote a shotgun and blow people apart and laugh while he does it. Um, and I don't know, if that's not enough to make you see the movie, I don't know what is. 
everyone should see Nobody. It's so good. Um, it's it's in theaters, but it's also on demand right now, and it's coming out on Blu-ray soon, which means it'll be cheaper to rent. Um, but man, it's a great movie. Awesome. Yeah, this has definitely been on my radar for a while, and I'll I'll have to make time to check this one out because yeah, I like me some some good action movies, and I like me some Bob Oden- Odenkirk. So yes. putting those two together, that sounds like a good time. Yeah, it's a whole list of things, reasons to recommend it, but the easiest recommendation I can make is just, if you've seen any of the John's Wick and you like those, um, you will like this. I can't, I cannot imagine the person who likes John Wick and would not like this. Um, and they're not exactly the same thing, but um, they're in that same wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nomadland uh, by Chloe Zhao, which won Best Picture this year. Uh, one of the most deserving Best Picture winners ever. I feel like this and then last year, Parasite by Bong Joon-ho won it. And that is two years in a row where like just the right movie won. And the right movie, I feel like in a, like a mathematical sense, like scientifically, these were the best films of their year. And it's really hard to deny that. Um, and and Nomadland just by Chloe Zhao It's an incredible movie Frances McDormand plays a woman who uh, The whole premise, and this is true It's this town in the Midwest That like um, Had uh, a big factory That was there, that was like a mining factory And the factory like literally built The town and so all the residents of the town Lived in like the factory housing and all this stuff And then the factory Went away to like another country or something and the town literally by within six months the zip code was eliminated because everyone was forced to move away and Frances McDormand's character lived there with her husband he dies then the town goes away she now lives out of a van and she winds up joining this kind of culture of nomads and it's this this community of of older retirees people who would be I shouldn't say they're not retirees they would be retirement age but obviously don't have the money to do it and don't have the money to like live in housing and don't really have family around and they kind of live on the road um, in sort of nomad communities in the Midwest. Um, and it is sort of a mix of documentary and fiction. Francis McDormand and David Strathairn, who is a, is a is an actor you'll know immediately. You might know him from the Bourne movies. He's like the, the head of Treadstone in movies two and three. Um, they're the only two professional actors in the movie. Everyone else in the movie is a an actual like person who lives in one of these communities or is someone inspired by that. Um, and they're playing like versions of themselves and it's all shot on location. Um, and it's just following McDormand's character through basically a year in her life. Um, um, it's incredible. It's a masterpiece. It is very much worth seeing on the big screen if you have a theater near you because it is a big, beautiful... Like, it's not just a big, beautiful widescreen movie with, like, amazing vistas and incredible cinematography, but it is also just, like, a... It's a meditative, like, in-the-moment movie that I know I myself would have had trouble watching on TV because getting in the zone to focus on something like this is just easier in a theater. Um, but it is, it, it's probably Frances McDormand's best work, and that is saying something very significant, because she is amazing. She won her third Oscar for this. She's now tied with Meryl Streep. Um, and Chloe Zhao, who became the second woman ever to win Best Director, it's, it's, she's an incredible director, and she is directing Eternals for Marvel. And I can say with some confidence now, Chloe Zhao is the Marvel director who has directed the best film. <laughs> like... Nomadland is better than a movie that almost any other Marvel director has made. The closest I would say in terms of great directors who've worked for Marvel are like Taika Waititi and Ryan Coogler, and neither of them have made a movie quite on par, I would say, with like a Nomadland. Um, so, boy, Marvel is lucky to have her for that. Uh, it's very good. 
Yeah, it is definitely interesting because they, I mean, because they announced that she was making Eternals like well before Nomadland came out, right? So they, they, yeah, the movie had been made, but like this was this movie was shot in like 2018 and then took a long time to edit and then delayed by the pandemic. So they, yeah, they they got Chloe Zhao way before she anyone thought she was like gonna win an Oscar, you know? Yeah, like that's a pretty huge get. Like I'm sure the people who helped make that sign that contract are very very happy right now at Disney. They're like, fucking hell yeah, we signed this contract with this lady a couple years ago, and now in the time since, um, she has won a fucking best picture and best director Oscar. I believe she's the only person at Marvel to have won best director. Um. Mm. I, I, Ryan Coogler, I believe, was he nominated for Black Panther? I don't know. He was nominated for Best Picture. Um, but like, yeah, that's, it's, it's big. She's amazing. Um, it's really cool. And it sounds like everything we're hearing about Eternals sounds like it's something pretty special where mm-hmm. I think, I think Kevin Feige knows talent when he sees it and is pretty good at like the, his best directors letting them kind of run a little freer as we've seen with like Black Panther and Thor Ragnarok. So that's good. That's a good sign. Um, Godzilla vs. Kong, uh, we already did a whole podcast on it and it's great, but it, man, if you can see it on a theater screen, this movie was made for that. It is so cool up on the big screen. The sound mix is so good. And just like appreciating the special effects, the special effects just look even better under the microscope of a giant big theater screen. Like one of the things I was just obsessed with watching at this time, Sean, you know, there's a whole section in the middle of the movie where Kong's on the fucking ship in the ocean, right? And so he's constantly wet. And the way water moves on his fur is so impressive because water on fur is already one of the hardest things to do in CGI. But when you have like a hundred foot gorilla who when he stands up, water comes off of him like rain from the sky, you know? Like, it is such cool attention to detail. The lines on Godzilla's face when he's, you know, you got your close-ups on Godzilla staring someone down are so good. Um, the entire last 40 minutes of this movie is just masterfully made. Um, I was on cloud nine watching it again in a theater. It's, it's, I liked it on a TV. I loved it in a theater. Awesome. Yeah, no, it is definitely the, the effects of Kong. Cause we talked about that when we talked about the movie, the, the scene where he coughs up the water, um, and it's just this, like, you know, you're dumping out, like, a reservoir of water, basically, on this boat when he coughs. Um, yeah, like, all that stuff, but the attention to detail, to the way that the scale of the creatures changes things that you should be familiar with. Like, yeah, water dripping off of, like, matted fur um, is very different when it's not a little little drops of water, and instead it's a waterfall basically coming off of this thing. Yes. It's so, I mean, so much of what, what I really appreciated this time is like so much of the characterization of Godzilla and Kong is like, like they hit like every action movie hero, like stereotype over the course of the movie, like jumping out of an explosion and like laying on the ground and firing the final shot and all these like action movie archetypes, like the, the Jackie Chan getting your head smashed through glass, which happens to Godzilla mm-hmm. and the way they do it, but not with humans, with giant fucking monsters, with this like level of verisimilitude that is both funny, but also like really cool and like character building. Um, it's an incredible effects accomplishment. Like, like that, to me, like, that's the obvious, like, front runner for any kind of visual effects award in the next year is Godzilla vs. Kong, because, like, 
the the work those because I, I don't know if you've seen this Sean all the animators on Twitter who've been like posting their reels from Godzilla versus Kong and like I did this shot I did this shot and then they'll talk about like the challenges of these individual shots and it's just like so much thought went into it like it's such an obvious labor of love when you watch that movie and I love that about it yeah it's just the scale of of the effects especially you know compared to the previous movies um where I guess like Godzilla King of the Monsters definitely has more of this but like having like two huge like super detailed monsters that are like your like two protagonist monsters basically um like there's so much that has to go into that to characterize them right to make godzilla and kong both like likable as basically main characters effectively but definitely differently characterized yeah it's really impressive effects work character work writing work um yeah it's a great movie i definitely need to make the time to to go see that in a week or so here uh and 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 actually watch it in a movie theater yeah, I think you'll I think you'll have a great time, Sean. It's it's great. Um, so yeah, okay. So there's that, and then finally, I've been watching these Fast and Furious movies. So I have seen the original, The Fast and the Furious, by Rob Cohen before, and I really like that one. I think that one's underrated. Um, but I have not seen two and three. So I got to see two this week, and then three is this next week. Um, and uh, one, the original, The Fast and the Furious, I just still think is like an underrated movie in that franchise. It's very solid. It is. 100% just point break with cars, but I don't know why that's a bad thing, because mm-hmm. point break is cool, cars are cool, you put them together, it's fun. It's also dated to the early 2000s in like the most wonderful ways, um, just like the music choices and all the stuff with like NOS in their cars and stuff like that. Man, I love it. Uh, the original The Fast and the Furious is a really... It's also got some really impressive stunt work in like the last half, like it's all like practical driving and you've got like stunt actors on top of cars doing jumps and it's that kind of stunt work where you know it's good stunt work because they don't care if you can tell if it's a stunt double that's mm-hmm. always to me like the, the the tell um so like paul walker will be like driving his car and then he'll get out onto the roof of the car and suddenly he has like a really heavy five o'clock shadow that he does not have <laughs> as an actor or like vin diesel will get in his car to pull out of the lot and suddenly he's a guy with like a, just a different skin color um, <laughs> driving the car. Because it's a stunt driver. You never see him. Who cares? Um, I love it. The, the original one's fun. And then I saw Too Fast, Too Furious. Which we agree, Sean. Best sequel title of all time, right? It's definitely in the running. Yeah. I mean, it is. It's it's every, every aspect of the title from the way they use the number to the way that they play off the title of the original movie. It is, yeah. It is an artful. If you want... Good number puns in a title. You can't get better than Too Fast, Too Furious. It's so good. I think it's that. It's Alvin and the Chipmunks, The Squeakquel. Yeah. You know, Die Harder. These are all great sequel Mama titles. Mamma Mia 2, Here We Go Again. Which, which that, is one's, that one's pretty great. The greatest of all subtitles. <laughs> yes. Uh, Too Fast, Too Furious, I think, gets a leg up because there is... The movie has a rap theme song where they just sing, I'm too fast, too furious over and over again and like it's in the end credits but also during the first race in the movie and that's pretty great um but but people like don't seem to like this one i really liked it it's uh directed by john singleton the late john singleton now sadly uh who famously directed like boys in the hood and some really influential 90s movies um and like a lot of the stylistic elements of later fast and furious movies clearly come into play in this one like the way they shoot and edit car racing um the way it uses hip-hop music over a lot of the action is is very much comes from this one um it's it's the only movie in the series without vin diesel in it in any capacity but 
like it has so much of the rest of the extended cast because this is Paul Walker is the main character but then this is also where you meet the characters Roman and Ted who are played by Tyrese Gibson and uh, uh, Ludacris um, come from this one um, and, and Eva Mendez is in this she shows up in I think Fast 6 or 7 or something um, so like you get a good chunk of the cast here and it's basically Miami Vice but stupider and with cars um, with Paul Walker and Tyrese Gibson as your like you know buddy cop duo um and it's very entertaining it is very silly it is it uses it's all set in my in like south florida and uses the south florida location really well um it has more focus on like actual like racing and street racing than any other movie in this ostensibly street racing mm-hmm. series like there are long extended sequences showing races and strategy and stuff like that that are very entertaining um paul walker i really like as an actor he you know, obviously passed away tragically before Furious 7 came out. And I don't think anyone would have ever accused him of being a great thespian. But he is just an incredibly, like, earnest actor. Like, he can just, he'll just say a line and you know his heart is in it no matter what the fuck it is. And I, he, he's like, like the jock in your high school who, like, you kind of wanted to hate because they were, like, really hot and athletic. But they were also, like, just genuinely, like, too nice for their <laughs> attributes and you're just like i can't hate you nice jock because you're a nice guy i know like that's paul paul walker was and and he's very good in these um and and i like too fast too furious it's a fun movie and i had not seen it and i i feel good now having seen it because it's got like i said several of these characters who are mainstays of the franchise now fucking the 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 tyrese gibson and Ludacris characters in the trailer for the new movie are going into space at the end of that trailer mm-hmm. and i love that in this they're just like like, you know, you meet Tyrese and he's, like, doing, like, uh, a monster car derby and the other guy, uh, Ludacris, is doing, like, street race, like, uh, administration. <laughs> and now they're going into space. Um, you know, this is a hell of a series. Yeah, I, I still have have yet to watch any of the Fast and Furious. Because like, I can't... I can't tell if I just prefer hearing about it from the outside without knowing anything about it. You know, because there's, there's those franchises that I've always been entertained by that. And then I get into them, and then sometimes it's great, and then sometimes it's like Metal Gear Solid or something, where there's a part of me that feels like I would have been happier never actually having played any of the Metal Gear games, and just having be a thing that people talk about, and me not really understanding anything about it. Um, that's kind of like what, because cause next up, right, for you is Tokyo Drift, which that's yes. the one for the longest time was like the last one in the continuity and, but they're but now they're past Tokyo Drift, right? They've they've yes. like they've like rounded that whole circle and are in the future future. Yeah, so it went so they did Tokyo Drift, and then when they brought Vin Diesel and the whole original cast back, they set four, five, and six all between two and Tokyo Drift, and then Tokyo Drift uh, seven is the first one after Tokyo Drift. Yeah, so. so so you'll you'll finally get to to figure out what was going on with. Those characters. Yeah, because the whole thing is in Tokyo Drift is when you meet Han, who is a fan favorite character. And Han dies in Tokyo Drift, but they wanted to have Han. So that is why 4, 5, and 6, which all have Han, are prequels to 3. And then Han dies in the end credit sequence of 6. And you find out that his death in 3 was orchestrated by Jason Statham, who is the villain of 7. And so then they're avenging his death in 7. Uh, but now in 9, Han is back somehow. Yeah. Um, which my hope is that they do like uh, a better tomorrow with Chow Yun Fat, and it's just his twin brother who looks just like him and like acts just like him. I would love that. I don't think that's what they're gonna do. Um, but yeah, Han is back. No, you no, you pull a Yakuza Seven and you have it be his uh, uh, body double 
Yes. That, yeah, because, you know, it's, yes, you should, yes, you know, where there are lots of ways that media can find ways to bring back characters that you killed off, but you really like the actor, and you wanted the actor to stick around, so you're like, well, let's just have this character, but it's just slightly not this character. Yeah, who knows? Uh, you know, at this point, if it were like a time travel thing, that like the doctor came and like plucked Han out of his timeline, like he did with Clara at like the moment of his death, and he's just running around with a still heartbeat... I would not uh, bat an eyelash at that with Fast and Furious. It's a very silly series. Yeah. You should watch them, Sean. They're very good. They're very fun. Um, you know, and like, honestly, like the, if you're on the movie's wavelength, you'll like all of them. Like, that's kind of the fun thing. Like, even the ones that I think are weaker, you'll have fun with. Um, but I don't know if you would be on their wavelength or not. Um, I don't know if you're into car movies as much as like I am, for instance. I mean, I mean that's the main reason why I have it is that yeah, I, I've never really been into car car movies and like car media that much. Although it seems like they have long since stopped. Be I like I don't know when was the last time I watched a trailer for these movies where in the trailer there was a car race. I don't think since four. Um, uh, no, they don't do car races anymore, but like, I mean, they still do all their action in cars is kind well, of the sure. gimmick, which I love. It's just like spy, now it's just like spy movies with cars, which, you know, again, which is, you add Which is just cars. spy movies, like some of like the most famous <laughs> early cinema car like scenes are all from fucking James Bond movies. Yes, but what they don't do is like drive a car from one tall building in China over through into another tall building in China, uh, which is what they do in Furious 7. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, there's a part of me that still wants to just like watch a trailer for one of these movies and be like, "But is it is that's but that's the guy that they killed in the in the future one, the Tokyo one that they they liked him, so they did they did all the other ones as prequels to that movie, but then leading to his actual death. But they still just like him so much that they brought him back anyway. So what was the point of doing all the prequel ones if you're just going to bring him back anyways and it didn't matter? I like having that experience just by watching I, the trailers. I and see I it, and that. however you want to enjoy them, there's no wrong way to enjoy these. I am excited to see Tokyo Drift because it has the best line in the entire franchise, which is, if you ain't out of control, you ain't in control. Uh, yeah. Which my brother and I say to each other all the time because we're idiots. Yeah, I, do, I will say that I think all of that stuff is the reason why, of all of these movies, the one I most want to watch is just Tokyo Drift. I might just watch <laughs> that one and have that be the only Fast and Furious I watch is just Tokyo Drift. All right. Um, Sean, do you want to do some news? What's going on in the news, Jonathan? My first piece of news is also just kind of a game. Uh, One Piece reached chapter 1000 this year, the, the uh, classic manga One Piece, which I love. Um, I love, the, I so love how you it's been on so long that you can legitimately call it the classic manga One Piece, and it's still ongoing, but it's still yes. true. It is a classic because it's been going for like 30 years. Yes. Um, since 1997... Uh, so, so we are approaching 25 years next year, Sean. <laughs> anyway, um, for its 1,000th chapter, they did the World Top 100 character poll. But they do character polls every several years for One Piece. All manga do this. Yeah. They do their fun character polls. But this is the first one they've done globally, not just within Japan. Uh, and so it was this big global popularity poll. I even bought the New York Times the week... Uh, they did this announcement because they put put a full page color ad in the American New York Times for this poll. They really wanted people to do it. And uh, there were over like 12 million votes. It was a big deal. We have the top 100, Sean. I just want to start at number one and go down the list for at least a little while and see how many of these characters you recognize as someone who does not watch One Piece, 
but watches a lot of anime and knows the like culture around a lot of this, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, but you'll I'll only be getting the names, so that will be that'll be an additional challenge because I'm sure there'll be some that I don't know the name of, but I would recognize, like you know, I would recognize any of the ones that are based on like the classic Japanese actors, like Shintaro Katsu and stuff. I don't know the characters, but I know that yeah. they I know what they look like. All right, number one obviously was Monkey D. Luffy. Had to be Luffy. Oh, who's that? I don't. I don't, okay. I don't recognize the name. I thought. I thought number one was going to be Naruto. I'm surprised. Uh, Naruto was sadly not eligible for this because they haven't yet done a Naruto crossover. They could have had Goku and Toriko in here because there is the Toriko crossover with Dragon Ball and One Piece. Uh, no one remembers Toriko, but that yeah, was. I was going to uh, say Toriko was going to is like aiming for that number one spot. Yeah. Uh, two is Zoro. Three is Nami. Four is Sanji. You know all of them, right? Yes. Yeah. That's they were okay. all. They were all. I remember them fondly from the four kids dub because I, I yes. saw all of them on that. Number five, my boy Trafalgar D Waterlaw. No, not really. I just don't know. Don't know Trafalgar Law. All right. No. Is he a uh, villain? No. He is oh. a. He is a friend. He sounds uh, he like is... he sounds like he would be like part of because the, the Navy are the bad guys, right? Yes. I say that sounds Trafalgar no, D Water Law sounds a lot like a man who would part of the Water Law, you know, the <laughs> fucking Navy. No, it's so he's Trafalgar Law. His full I always say his full name because it makes me laugh. Trafalgar D Water Law, like Monkey D Luffy. He's got the the D is important for this mm-hmm. series. Anyway, uh, number six, Nico Robin. Okay, yeah. Number seven, Boa Hancock. Yep. Okay, number eight, Carrot. I know what carrots are. Um, like, Carrot like, is a bunny lady. She is a mink. She is someone everyone wants to be. I say she's a mink. You have no idea what that means. They're they're a transforming race of like rabbits. Um, everyone wants Carrot to be the next Straw Hat pirate. Um, and yes, Carrot is awesome. There was a big campaign to get Carrot in the top ten, and she's in the top ten, and we're all happy about that. Carrot is one of two characters I voted for in this poll. Uh, number nine, Port Gas D Ace. That's Luffy's brother, right? Yes. Okay, then yes. Number ten, Sabo. The name is very familiar, but I can't picture the character in my head. Sabo is Luffy's other brother, and he is voiced by Toru Furia. That is why I never heard yes. the name. Yeah. Number eleven, Yamato. Just, just Yamato. Is it a Japanese guy? Yeah. <laughs> like... No, it's a woman who. Uh, she oh, kind of like wants a Yamato Nadeshko. Okay, okay. I think I yeah. probably already know what this character looks like. Uh, Yamato is uh, was a, was introduced into the manga while this poll was ongoing. So Yamato is very recent um, and is probably the other person most likely to be the next Straw Hat. Uh, number okay, twelve, Red Hair. Arch- I just googled her. That's just Archer Inferno from Fate Grand Order. So okay, there, there you go. Number number twelve, uh, Red Haired Shanks. Yeah, that, that sounds familiar. I don't know if that's just because I know what Long Shanks is, but sure. Shanks is the first. Is like he and Luffy are the first two characters you meet. He gives okay. Luffy the hat. Oh, yeah. okay, 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, number thirteen, Don Quixote Rosinante, aka Corazon. I mean, I know Don Quixote. Does the, he go fight windmills? No, uh, he's part of the Don Quixote family. I don't know why Corazon is this high. Corazon is a character in Trafalgar Law's flashback. He's a cool character. I have no idea how he got into the top 20. Uh, Number 14, Charlotte Katakuri. Nope. I got to stop here right now, Jonathan, and say something (laughs) that's pretty blasphemous. Where the fuck is Tony Tony Chopper? Uh, He's number 16. This is horseshit. How is Tony Tony Chopper not like one or two? 
Um, you know, fans are fickle. Uh, 15 is Usopp and 16 is Tony Tony Chopper. I would have had Chopper higher as well. I also think Usopp is maybe uh, low because the other four... So of the five original Straw Hats, Usopp is the only one who's not in the top four. So poor Usopp. Yeah. But yes, Tony Tony Chopper probably should be higher. He's at number 16. Uh, although the two Straw Hats who fell out of the top 20 are Brooke and Frankie. So, so he is higher than them. Is Frankie a skeleton? No, Brooke is the skeleton, Brooke Frankie is the, is the big cyborg. Okay. Uh, and Jimbe is the other straw hat. He's at number 18. Okay. I don't know yeah. who Jimbe is. Okay, Jimbe's cool. 17, Crocodile. I know what crocodiles are. Uh, is, does he look like a crocodile or behave in any Not way at like all. a crocodile? Not in any way, shape, it's or form. His name. powers are sand-based, and he lives in a desert. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, I guess, you know, maybe like an Egyptian crocodile. You know, there's, yeah. there's some desert imagery, I guess, you could associate there. 19, Marco. No, I, He's no. a phoenix. He, he has phoenix powers. Marcus uh, Phoenix. Ten- okay, yes. I yeah, know who Marcus yeah. Phoenix is. <laughs> Number 20. Number 20, Don Quixote do Flamingo. Okay, this is a different character than Cortezone. Yes, okay. yes. D- Don Quixote do Flamingo is the head of the Don Quixote family. Don Quixote Corazon is like one of his underlings. So is Don Quixote a title or is it their name? No, it is his. It is the name of his family, but like he's like a Yakuza boss, so he gives everyone else like in his family. Like Corazon might have been like his brother. Corazon might have been his brother. I don't remember the details of that super well. That's okay. from the Dressrosa arc, which is the was the longest arc in the series until maybe this week. Wano finally passed it. Um, yeah, uh, Don Quixote, Do Flamingo, real bastard. Corazon was a good guy. Uh, Do Flamingo, no good. Um, yeah, I could keep going. There's a hundred of these. Um, you know. I could ask you who Whoop Slap is, but I know you don't know who Whoop Slap is. <laughs> Whoop Slap is the name of the the mayor in Chapter 1 of Luffy's Village. And there was a fan campaign to get him into the top 50 because Oda is going to do a big color spread illustrating the top 50 from this poll. So now he will have to draw Whoop Slap again. Are there any other characters that got pushed into the top 50 just as like a, a joke? Um, no, most I, I think mostly they were like... Um, it, it seems totally organic to me. Uh, Carrot, not a joke. People genuinely love Carrot. Uh, and Carrot would have been there, I think, with or without a campaign. I mean, it's, carrots um, are one of my favorite fruits. Or here's here's one so. I love, Sean. Here's one I love that is that got... This is number 32, is the Going Mary. It's their first ship. <laughs> Became... Is one of the top 50 characters, the Going Mary. Okay. Which I think is great. Uh, if you've read the series, that actually makes more sense. Um, yeah, none of these other really seem like jokes to me. Um, the the highest, like Corazon, I don't know if that was a joke or what. I don't know how Corazon got that high. Um, but yeah, uh, other than that, it seems, it's all pretty kosher to me. Maybe Tony Tony Chopper's a little low. But Tony Tony Chopper also has not been super prevalent in the series for a while. Um, although he's recently had some really good stuff in Wano, but that was while the poll was ongoing. Yeah, yeah. So, so the One Piece fandom, you've disappointed me that you have not identified okay. the best character in your own thing, um, which is Tony Tony Chopper. Also, I have Googled uh, One Piece Carrot because I realized if I just Googled Carrot, it wouldn't get me what I was looking for. Um, <laughs> and I have to say that so it looks like, like you said, these the character can transform. I'm guessing one of the pictures I'm looking at is a transformed version of the character that it just looks like a Digimon. Yeah, no, she does look which like a not Digimon. A, yeah. Which I want to say is not a bad thing, yeah. but it looks like a Digimon and that's cool. Uh, I was also... Here's another couple of favorites from me. I voted several times for Karu, who is my Twitter avatar. Karu is Vivi's, like, duck 
companion in Alabasta. Carew is fucking awesome. Carew got to number 75. I was happy with that because Carew is not a super prominent character. Um, I was also happy to see Panda Man, who is the, not a character, it is a thing that Oda puts in as Easter eggs on different panels. And then in the, ja for people who don't know, in Japanese manga, your, your graphic novels, your Tankoban, all have a dust cover on them. We don't do that in the West, but they all have a little dust cover. And so if you pull the dust cover off, there's another version of the illustration in there. He always has Panda Man in for one of the characters on the inner illustration uh panda man got to 97 which i love because panda yeah. man is not an actual character he's just an easter egg but i mean if one of the, if a ship got in the top 100 panda man yes. should be in the top 100 absolutely um all right that's enough of that that was just to be silly and fun you want to move on to some video game news yeah what's going on with video games uh sega and ryoto gagoku uh gotoku studios yeah <laughs> i'll let you say it because i started it and realized i didn't have it written down <laughs> So, um, uh, yeah, so RGG Studio announced Lost Judgment this week. It is the sequel to Judgment, known in Japan as Judge Eyes, which is their Yakuza spinoff game. It is coming September 24th worldwide on the new consoles. Uh, Judgment, they have now confirmed, is an ongoing series, obviously. Yep. It will be continuing the action gameplay it inherited from the original Yakuza series, while they also confirmed they are planning for future Yakuza titles to follow Yakuza 7 in the JRPG turn-based gameplay, which I also feel like is sort of a low-key confirmation we're going to see more of uh, Kasuga Ichiban. Yes. Um, because who else would pretend they're playing Dragon Quest while fighting the Yakuza? Uh, so I found this announcement super exciting, Sean, from like several angles. And I haven't even played Judgment, although I sure as shit will be over the summer in preparation for Lost Judgment, which if nothing else has sick-ass cover art. Uh, mm -hmm. And I am excited for this game. Yeah, no, I was very, very excited to get this news. Uh, because there are like a couple of reasons why... I think a lot of the fan base was not sure if Judgment would ever get a sequel. Although this had been like teased a little bit over the past couple of weeks. Um, and it actually got leaked like a day or two early. Um, which, along with another piece of news we'll talk later. There's a lot of leaky news out of Japan around stuff apparently. Um, but yeah, they had like done a timer on the Ryuga Gotoku Studio website. That was like, hey, there's going to be a Judgment connected announcement. Which either meant like something that nobody would give a shit about because that happens all the time there's some sort of countdown to something and then it ends up being like and we're releasing a poster it's like okay um <laughs> and but no it's the actual announcement to a sequel um and the most important thing with that is that uh the kimura takuya the character the actor who plays the main character yagami um is back because that was the main reason why people were not sure if they would do a sequel is because kimitaku is a huge huge actor in japan particularly on like tv dramas and stuff like that um, and so it was a really big get for them to have him play the main character in Judgment slash Judge Eyes. And by, like, main character, I mean, like, he's full-on... He has as much narrative content as Kiryu or Ichiban in that game. It's not like a Kiefer Sutherland in MGS5 scenario where it feels like they had to cut half the script um, because they only had a week with him in the booth or something. Um, Kimitaku, a day. They did not have a week yeah. with Kiefer Sutherland. He does not have that many lines. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, because they, they do. They just kind of hey, here do one take of like, uh, enemy or whatever, and then you just use that for half the game. Um, but yeah, but Kimitaku just it's a full performance. It doesn't feel like anything was changed because he's a big actor. Um, and so it was one of those things of like, will they be able to lock him down again? He's an actor that has like a busy schedule. Um, but full on, he's in there, he's in the trailer, he's on the fucking poster. It's like a five minute trailer, um, because the studio really likes for their first trailers to be just huge. Um, so it's like a big five minute trailer. They also had a 30 minute live stream. 
um, along with it that had Nagoshi, uh, the producer for the Yakuza and Judgment series on there talking about the game a little bit. And yeah, it looks great. Um, it, 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 I'm very happy that they're doing the split. Um, this is kind of exactly what I think most fans wanted. Unless, you know, there are some fans who just like the, the turn-based stuff doesn't work for them. But if you like the turn-based stuff in Yakuza 7, but you also like the old games, I think everyone was sitting there thinking like, this is what they need to do. They need to make Judgment an ongoing thing because Judgment was so fucking good and keep the action gameplay in there. Because that's like the best action combat they have done on the current engine is absolutely the Judgment stuff. Um, because Yakuza 6 and Kiwami 2 are like them kind of like, were them building up a lot of that stuff after switching to the new engine for the first time in like 10 years. And then Judgment was where they really went full in and had like what felt like a fully featured version of the combat system they had been kind of building up to in the Dragon Engine. Um, so having that, continuing that, um, the multiple different styles approach, it sounds like he's going to have a third style on top of the first two he had from the uh, original game. Um, and having all that action combat, that's awesome. But then, yeah, having the confirmation that they're going to continue to develop um, the turn-based stuff in future Yakuza games, that's fucking having your cake and eating it too. Because I have been having such a great time, particularly now that I'm like pretty deep into Yakuza 7, I'm in the Osaka stuff, um, that like that combat I think really comes into its own and the job system and all that once you start experimenting with it is a lot of fun. But it also clearly there's like it's the studio's first attempt at some of that stuff. So you can tell that like if they get to make a sequel to Yakuza 7 using the same concepts, um, they could like really kind of push that into being like one of the most interesting turn-based combat like systems in forever. So this <laughs> is this is good all around. If you're a fan of these games, this is like the dream announcement basically happened on that fucking uh, live stream. And it's yes. great. So, so Judgment took place in Kamurocho, like the original yes. area, right? Yeah, the and whole game is just Kamurocho. You don't even go to Sotenbori or anywhere like that. Right. Didn't they announce that the new one will have some stuff in Yokohama the way mm -hmm. and take place in some of the Yakuza 7 areas? Because that sounded really cool to me, yeah, too. Yeah, because this is very much what the studio does because, you know, it's, it has to be very efficient because they make very big games um, and a very short time frame. And so the reason why in Yakuza 7 you go to Osaka at all is just because they made they built that location in the engine for Kiwami 2. Um, and so I, I would not be surprised if you also at some time, at some point end up in Osaka in Lost Judgment just to like make use of all the resources. But yeah, they built out Yokohama for Yakuza 7. So yes, it looks like some of that's, you're going to go be hanging out there sometime in Lost Judgment also, um, yeah. which is exciting. This is also the first worldwide launch they've ever done. Um, yes. there's always been a pretty heavy lead time on like Yakuza 7 was like, January in Japan and then November in America, mm -hmm. but it is full on worldwide, dubbed and subtitled, uh, all around the world. That's pretty big. Yeah, yeah, and on more platforms because it's also coming. I don't think it's coming to PC yet, although I would bet that there would be a PC version. Um, but it's coming to PlayStation and Xbox, which is the first time you'd have a worldwide release and on all those platforms at the same time too. Um, you yeah. can tell that like Sega is really investing pretty heavily in the series and the games that that studio makes because they have it's been a huge since Yakuza Zero it has just been like I feel like an exponential increase in that output that the, of that studio around the whole world so yeah very very cool uh, I'm so happy they're doing all of this and uh, I st I still want them to do some remasters of those those uh, the the ones set in the past yes <laughs> yeah like Kin, Kinzan and Ishin yes they should absolutely. Yes. Do do a modern remaster and put those out 
in the West because that would be cool. Not that they're not giving us enough. I, I'm not yeah. trying to sound greedy. Just uh, if they need to fill in even more time. But yeah, Judgment also just had its port to PS5. So like mm-hmm. I said, I'm, I'm going to pick that up and play that soon. Um, probably make that a summer project. So I'm ready for Lost Judgment. Yes. All right, let's do some movie news. Sean, Marvel had a little video out where they confirmed um, something that had been a little bit in flux, but what their uh, movie output schedule is for the next... Uh, couple of years so let's go through this really quick they have black widow coming july 9th 2021 we've known that forever i it's been moved a million times i think they probably will stick to july this time i mean frankly from what we've seen they could probably have kept their may date if they wanted to but they're doing it in july and i think it'll probably do well there shang chi is set for september that is the first time a Marvel movie has ever come out in September. September is one of the few months that still has never like had a big hit released in it. This will probably change that. Um, Eternals is coming November. And that is the one by Chloe Zhao. And Spider-Man No Way Home, the third Spider-Man movie, is December 17th, 2021. So we have four movies just in the back half of 2021, in addition to all the MCU series we've had on Disney+. Um, and most of these I'm excited for. Yeah, it definitely feels like it is. These would be the four movies that would have released across the entire year, and for obvious reasons, does not happen. So instead, it's like, well, let's just. Well, this is two. This is two years worth of movies. This was supposed to be like Black Widow and Eternals were both supposed to be twenty twenty. Shang Chi got moved up to in between them, and then Spider Man No Way Home was always going to be twenty twenty one. So this was two years of movies that got pushed into into yeah, one year because yeah because it's because the the video that they announced this in like the first half of the video is basically like clips of old marvel movies with some um old stan lee um audio playing over it and then at the midpoint they shift into showing like all these logos and you keep on thinking like well there can't be another logo and then there's another logo and you also think it's like well there can't be another movie that's releasing this year and it's like yeah i remember getting to shang chi it's like oh cool two marvel movies i'm looking forward to those and the turtles oh right that's coming out this year too and then spider-man i'm like oh that's also this year holy shit yes um you know uh shang chi we talked about the trailer we're really excited for that eternals we got a little bit of like sort of background footage and we got some interviews this week talking about like um, Kevin Feige discovering that location shooting is a thing. I found that very funny. There was an interview where he's like, Chloe Zhao wanted to go shoot this on location. We'd never even thought of that. And it's like, that's cool. But anyway, Eternal sounds like it's a really going to be a very pretty gorgeous movie, which makes sense because um, her films are very visually um, um, mesmerizing, honestly. Uh, and then uh, I don't think there was any footage of Spider-Man, but they're working on that. Mm-hmm. So there you go. So that's 2021. 2022 also has four movies. And these are, this is a cool, this is a year I am very excited for with Marvel. Uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness by uh, Mr. Sam Raimi coming March 25th, 2022. That sounds fun. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're talking about good movie (laughs) subtitles earlier. Um, In the Multiverse of Madness is like the most fuck it we can just we can just do the comic books now kind of subtitles like we don't have to like care we don't have to hide it let's just make a movie called dr strange in the multiverse of madness thor love and thunder is may 6th 2022 so it is taking that big may uh avengers slot uh because people love thor and man this movie looks so good sean Mm -hmm. or it's i mean they were there was no footage obviously but it sounds amazing yeah yeah, I'm very excited for that. Thor can. I'm, I'm happy that like Thor is the one original Avenger that they're keeping around and doing more stuff with. 
um, because he's yes. my favorite. Uh, July 2022, we are getting Black Panther Wakanda Forever. So we had not had a confirmed title of this, but this is uh, Black Panther 2 is called Black Panther Wakanda Forever. A little bit with Ryan Coogler and the cast talked um, about, you know, respecting Chadwick Boseman's legacy and all of that. Um, you know, I, I'm still, I'm really curious what this movie is going to be, obviously, with mm-hmm. their main character gone and they're not recasting or using him in any way. Um, you know, it did... I'm really curious if they're going to have T'Challa like having died off screen or something else or what it will be. You know, it made me think because I was watching uh, like the, the the same week this came out. I, I watched Too Fast, Too Furious, you know, with Paul Walker. And the way they handled his death in the Fast and Furious movies was so graceful in that they literally just had him like drive off into the sunset with his family. And so he still is alive in the world and having a life. He's just not having a life like with the main characters doing car adventures and I, I always really liked that. And I don't know if there's a way you can really do that with Black Panther. Yeah. And it's this is why I thought they should recast. This is why I felt like just saying, like, because Chadwick Boseman died, T'Challa has to die with him is something I still find kind of tough to swallow. But I do trust Ryan Coogler, and it sounds like that was his decision. So... Uh, and obviously, like, that title is a pretty clear statement of intent, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm curious, yeah, to see what they do with it. Like, are they, like, because to me, like, the clear thing to do in terms of, like, how do you have be Black Panther now is just have Shooty become Black Panther because there's precedence with it in the comic books. It's a great character in the movies. But, yeah, I'm really curious to see how they handle that. Yeah, I mean... There's, there's a version of this where I could easily see them, like, mirroring Chadwick Boseman's life story on screen. Like, King T'Challa was living with an illness that no one knew about. Mm-hmm. And then he dies. And then this movie is about figuring out, like, his legacy and how the country goes on. And that's why it's, you know, called Wakanda Forever. And that could be a very moving film. And, and we'll see what, what Coogler decides to do with it. But that is coming July 2022. July 8th. So that is, that is going to be their big summer slot there. Uh, and then November 2022, November 11th, we are getting Captain Marvel 2, which is now just called The Marvels, because it will be about three Captains Marvel. It will be Kara uh, Danvers. No, Carol Danvers. Kara Danvers is Supergirl. Carol uh-huh. Danvers is Captain Marvel. Carol Danvers, played by Brie Larson, um, the character from, um, well, she was in that movie, and then she's in WandaVision, who is like uh, Maria Rambeau. Uh, who I forget the name of the actress, but really good actress. She was in WandaVision and she's really cool there. In WandaVision, she like awakens to her Captain Marvel powers. Uh, and then you will also have Miss Marvel, um, Kamala Khan, who we have not met yet, but will be in a Disney Plus series later this year, I believe is when they're, I think they're planning Miss Marvel for like December on Disney Plus this year. Um, so it'll be all the Captain's Marvel in one movie. And that frankly makes me more interested in this than I otherwise would have been because Captain Marvel is one of the weaker Marvel movies. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if, like, the character that they built... I love Brie Larson, but I don't know if the character, like, they wrote and kind of built out is enough to, like, hang a whole franchise on. And I feel like this is probably the right approach. Yeah, I definitely think that, like, unmoored from some, like, the 90s stuff and not having, like, Samuel L. Jackson as, like, the co-star. Like, that gave, you know, for, like, better or worse for that movie, that's what gave that movie a lot of shape. And I kind of agree that, like, it makes it then hard to imagine that character plucked out of the context of that film and put into a different movie and being like the the like lead um that yeah i think it's smart to then 
have that kind of split up amongst these different characters. Yeah, so that should be fun. And they're going all in on Kamala Khan, which is cool. It's kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, what's happened with um, um, Miles, Miles Morales yeah. on Spider-Man, you know, um, really coming center stage, which is cool. Then 2023, we don't have the full slate, but they did just confirm that Ant-Man 3, which is called Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania is coming February 2023, and Guardians of the Galaxy 3 is May 2023. Uh, Just filling out two very unlikely movie trilogies from Marvel, Guardians of the (laughs) Galaxy and Ant-Man. So there you go. Yeah, like, can you imagine, like, teleporting back to, or time traveling back to 2008 and, like, having your, like, you know, (laughs) high school self come out of watching Iron Man and be like, man, that was really cool, and oh, there's going to be an Avengers thing, and then you walking up and be like, oh, by the way, uh, (laughs) in, you know, in, like, 15 years, there's going to be a third Ant-Man movie, and then just, like, zap away. It's like, nobody would ever believe you. Like, you maybe could convince people that they'd eventually make a Ant-Man movie, but to get to three Ant-Man movies is, uh, like, beyond what anyone could have ever imagined. Yes. Uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is Peyton Reed again, so he will have done all three of those. Guardians of the Galaxy is, obviously, James Gunn again. Um, and the Guardians are also going to be showing up in Thor Love and Thunder, so lots of those characters to come. So, anyway, that's the, the slate, and I just kind of wanted to go over that, because it's... Uh, I've been a little, like, down on Marvel recently because I, I didn't love how WandaVision ended. And then Falcon and the Winter Soldier is a bad show. Uh, so I I am excited for some of these movies, though. I Black Widow's trailers are not doing anything for me, but all these other movies seem cool. So we'll see. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you that, like, um, yeah, the, the, it just feels like we talked about this before a couple weeks ago, but it just feels like they're moving in an interesting direction by like pushing we're getting some new characters like shang chi and the eternals and stuff and then a lot of the existing characters it looks like they're pushing in interesting ways like doctor strange 2 um like getting into some of like this weirder stuff it looks like they're leaning into is very exciting yeah like honestly most of the ones that are sequels aren't even like very like sequel e sequels like the mm-hmm. marvels is going to be this team-up movie with two characters who haven't been in a movie before black panther will not have black panther in it the original one you know thor love and thunder is going to be they're going to do all the stuff with jane foster and we're going to have the guardians of the galaxy and it's probably going to be our sort of avengers e movie of this cycle it feels like with the number of characters that are going to mm-hmm. be in it fucking christian bale is the villain i still can't get over that that's so cool anyway all right uh but fuck all that better yes. news <laughs> More Better important news. news. More important news. A new Dragon Ball Super movie has finally been confirmed. The announcement was leaked early, but we got it officially today as we are recording. This is May 9th, which is Goku Day, and that comes from Goku. Go is five and Ku is nine in Japanese. So May 9th, Goku. Uh, and they had the announcement from Toei Animation that in 2022, we will be getting a new Dragon Ball Super theatrical film. Uh, Akira Toriyama gave a statement, as he always does when they announce one of these movies. Um, it was in Japanese and English on their site, but I'm going to use the translation from Kanzenshu because the actual English translation from Toei is somewhat different than what he says in Japanese. So this is basically what he said in Japanese. Production of a theatrical film following on from Dragon Ball Super Broly has been given the go-ahead and is currently underway. Once again, I've poured my heart and soul into it, writing the story down to the dialogue itself. Apparently, its content is still under wraps, so I can't talk about it, but I think it'll be a real hoot, with a bit of an unexpected character playing a big role. It seems the visuals are going to be fresh and pretty crazy, so please look forward to it. 
I am. I am yes, looking forward to I'm it. I'm very Toriyama-san. much looking forward to it. Yeah, this is something that like I feel like we've been in the lurch for a while now on what's happening with new Dragon Ball stuff because it felt like, you know, Dragon Ball Super ended on such a tremendous high note. Dragon Ball Super Broly is, is like a great, great fucking Dragon Ball movie. Um, everybody loved all of it. Like everybody wanted more. And then it was just like dark for years at this point um, that yes, I'm extremely, extremely happy that we're getting more Dragon Ball. Yeah, to give some context for people who maybe haven't been following Toei's other stuff, Toei has just been through sort of a restructuring basically to make their animation better. Um, they were at a pretty untenable point with One Piece as their ongoing weekly series. Um, Dragon Ball Super had a ton of production problems as it was on the air. Um, and just like a lot of issues sort of. And so after Super Broly is when they started taking a lot of this stuff seriously. Tatsuya Nagamine, who directed Super Broly and the last half of the TV show Super, um, he, and he is really like Toei's ringer at this point, he went and took a lot of the team from Dragon Ball and took over One Piece for the Wano arc, and they've been doing that. And if you have not been following it, the Wano arc of One Piece has been genuinely incredible, and the animation in it is the best One Piece has ever had. Um, it is an incredible leap, because One Piece in basically the like the whole Cake Island Dress Rosa era really sort of fell off a cliff in terms of animation quality. Um, and so it really needed a shot in the ass and Nagamine and company have given it that. But it's not just them, like the the Dragon Quest anime that's airing right now. I have not watched it yet, but it is apparently also just incredible as a production um, and really, really impressive. And it's another just, I don't know how long it's going to run. For now, it's just a weekly ongoing thing. Um, their, their Digimon show has apparently been up and down a little bit. It got hit by the pandemic, but has been a fairly impressive production. So Toei has kind of gotten their shit in order. Like I saw an interesting tweet the other day where someone pointed this out and I think it's true. Like Dragon Ball Super Broly and One Piece Stampede came out like six months apart from each other and both felt like real revelations for longtime Toei watchers because like Super Broly we know just animation wise is one of the best things Dragon Ball's ever had right mm -hmm. and just was so far above and beyond what we'd seen uh and One Piece Stampede was sort of the debut of the new animation style that is then used in the Wano arc and Stampede looks incredible but if you go back and look at it now it honestly doesn't look that much different than what Wano is doing on a weekly basis so they've just gotten sort of the house in order over at Toei and I think that's why Dragon Ball has been on the back burner because Dragon Ball is not an ongoing weekly concern the way some of this other stuff is. And so all of that is to say, I am incredibly excited for what they're going to be able to do with Dragon Ball in a world where Toei isn't like spinning out of control. Um, and honestly, I'm excited it's a movie. They, they could have done another season of TV or something, but like... I think all told, I would be more excited just in more Dragon Ball movies at this point if they're done at this level of quality, just given how good Battle of Gods was, how great Broly is, um, and it's Toriyama writing it again. Um, very cool. I am looking forward to it. Yeah. I am curious if this is going to... Like, I wonder if they're planning on eventually shifting into a Dragon Ball Super 2 or something like TV show or something like that. Because the, Dragon Ball Super manga has been ongoing... Yes. this whole time by Toyotato. Um, and like occasionally I kind of like pop in just like, I don't really read it, but I read like people's reactions to it just to like see what stuff is going on. And it feels, and I'm pretty sure it just ended. It's like huge arc um, that it did afterwards. Um, like that set after the tournament of power and Broly stuff um, that I'm curious because for people who don't know the manga and the anime both like started from the same place. That is like partially kind of Toriyama's 
notes and kind of ideas and then they went into fairly direction different directions in, in a lot of the arcs that they shared they did some very different things um so i'm curious to know if this is going to be connected to anything connected to the manga if they're planning on doing anything with the manga or if this is just going to be entirely its own thing disconnected from all of that mm -hmm. yeah so they just finished the galactic patrolman arc which was this sort of jocko uh led arc of dragon ball super and now they're in it's something about Granola, the space destroyer, or something. But the, the main villain's name is Granola, which I find very funny. That's a very Dragon Ball-esque pun mm -hmm. to do. It is uh, Granola, the survivor, is the current manga story arc. Um, so yeah, I and I think they've had some contributions from Toriyama, but my understanding is like he's not super involved in the stories of those. Um, and so my expectation is the movie won't be based on any of that stuff, but we'll see if they ever do an anime adaptation of it. Um he has this line in his statement about uh, an unexpected character playing a big role, which makes me think, like, I wonder if they're going to do something a little akin to Broly, of have it built around a character who... Uh, not necessarily the same thing where it's like a filler movie character that needed to be rehabilitated, but I'm, I'm curious what kind of character they're going to build this one around. It's Lord Slug, everybody's favorite. Lord they're, Slug. Bringing, they're bringing him back. Garlic Jr., Sean. Dragon Ball Super Garlic Jr. That's what I want. Um, yeah, he breaks out of the dead zone. It's like oh, again, shit. yeah. Oh yeah, that's right because they have uh, this is an arc. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, the fucking Garlic Jr. Uh, saga in the TV show is terrible. Um, no, Gar honestly, Garlic Jr. was better than Broly to begin with because his movie was good. Yeah. So he doesn't need a rehabilitation movie. Uh, he's fine. Um, I am. I am curious what this will be, and and you know, there's a lot of room to invent, and yeah, and I'll see, we'll see if if they do more TV at some point. I. I would kind of expect that if they do TV, it'll be after Dragon Quest ends. Yeah. And maybe that team will roll off into another season of Dragon Ball Super if that's something Toei wants to do. I do think like part of this is just Toei, I think, has seen that Dragon Ball will have its audience whenever you bring it back. So I, it's, I just don't know if it's like a front of mind concern. And it doesn't need to be, right? It's Dragon Ball. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I, w I would like them to... I, I just enjoyed watching Super so much. I would love for them to, yeah. to do a, a TV show. Although I agree with you that I think it would have to be something that would either happen after the their kind of remake of Digimon Adventure, which is what the Digimon show they're doing right now is, or after the Dragon Quest Adventure of Die. Um, yeah. It has to probably be one of those two. But yeah, like it is, it's cool to see Toei kind of like turn around. Like it just feels like they've, they've kind of caught up to what a lot of modern anime production is. Because honestly, if they did a TV show for Dragon Ball Super, like I wouldn't really want it to be, here's a weekly thing that goes for fucking 200 episodes or something. I would rather if they were to do that, like say, let's do two cores or four cores or whatever, if they want to, like Toei seems to still be stuck in this world where they really want the like year long shows every once in a while. Um, but something that's more specifically built from the beginning in that model, rather than let's just keep, turning it until we're done or until like we can't turn it anymore um which is what a lot of those like weekly shows that just go for years and years are like um i think if they shifted to a more modern anime production schedule and stuff i think you could do something pretty cool with a tv uh dragon ball i agree and i not to be morbid yeah i would kind of like if they do another dragon ball to do something with some sense of finality like bring it to the end of z and beyond or something and like you know, Toriyama's not getting any younger. Masako Nozawa is almost 90. 
this this cast is not going to be around. Several major pillars of this cast have already passed away, yeah. like Hiromi Suru. Um, we're going to be on our third Mr. Satan when they come back. Um, you know, I and and I've said this before. I don't really know how you do Dragon Ball without like Masako Nozawa. Yeah. I feel like that is a, just a line in the sand that I don't. I feel like you would have to like reboot the whole fucking thing if you're going to do that for anyone to accept a new Goku. Um, so you know, I would maybe play it a little safe and and maybe do a, a victory lap, a farewell tour kind of thing for Dragon Ball. It doesn't have to be the end forever, but maybe like for these characters and like the show that they've been doing on and off for forty years, you know, maybe start to think about what's the end game. Yeah, yeah, like you mentioning that. I wonder if the unexpected character is Oob. Like, I wonder if that's, I wonder if, like, he's bringing it closer to the end of Z type stuff. Because, because that was, like, always technically Dragon Ball Super was always, it, is, it no longer makes sense, but it's supposed to be set after the end of the Boo stuff, before the epilogue, um, where you see, like, grown up Goten and Trunks, and you go to the tournament, and that's where Boo, who's been reborn as Oob is, and Goku flies off to go train him, right? Like, it's supposed to be set in between that period. I think it's kind of hard to believe that everything that's happened in Dragon Ball Super, that secretly Goku actually has attained the power of the gods. And um, all that shit has happened in between. Um, so maybe, like, yeah, bring it and kind of redoing or reimagining what End of Z looks like in a Dragon Ball Super universe. That might be, like, an interesting project and bringing Ubin in some capacity might be kind of interesting. I would love that. Like, if this movie were Dragon Ball Super Ub and the first, like... 10 20 minutes the first act is the end of z but just tweaked with enough that like the events of super are acknowledged because i can the end of z is so small and thin i could buy that you could like rework that it's just they've had all these adventures and now they're doing this fun thing at the tournament and then figure out how oob would fit into this story and like then do a movie about that that would be the that would be exactly what i'm asking for right in terms of like a farewell tour finale yeah. that could be really special yeah and so. then have like four-year-old pan go super saiyan um and just like yeah. flip flip the double verse to gt that never had her be super saiyan um <laughs> and then say fuck it i'm out like that's what i want toriyama to do <laughs> to do yeah i would also take a pan movie if they want to do that yes. dragon ball super pan because because it's the same actress who does videl and she's mm -hmm. great and uh you could have a lot of fun with that um so anyway there's there's lots of options maybe it is just dragon ball super gt and it's a remake of the first gt arc and uh, baby, we're going. We're going to do it right this time. I'm kidding. Toriyama has not seen Dragon Ball GT. Yeah. <laughs> and if he did see any of it, he has long since forgotten. That's that's the most important part, yeah. definitely. All right, Sean, you want to talk about some video games? Yeah, let's talk about the video games that we have been playing. Well, first off, I guess we'll put off our Yakuza Seven spoiler cast again. But is there yeah. anything you wanted to say about Yakuza Seven before we talk about some uh, some zombie monsters? It's fucking good. It's, just a good. it's a good fucking game. Yeah, like, I don't know. Like, yeah, I've, I've been having such a fun time doing all the side stuff. I mean, I even... This is how much I really like their most recent incarnation of the baseball minigame, which is... The, so the, the home run or, like, the batting cage minigame is, like, the classic Yakuza minigame. It's in almost every single one of these. It's like that, Shogi, Mahjong... I don't know how to play Shogi at all because I don't even really know how to... I only kind of know how to play chess. I sure shit don't know how to play fucking Shogi. Um, and I only know enough Mahjong to have gotten the side quest in Yakuza Kiwami 2. That's about it. Um, but I, I know how to do baseball and I liked baseball, like more arcade baseball games when I was a kid. Um, so I've always enjoyed the baseball games. But the Dragon Engine ones are so fun that even though they haven't done anything different with it since Yakuza 6, so Yakuza 6, Kiwami 2... 
and I don't remember if it's in Judgment or not, but it's in Yakuza 7. It's the exact same thing. There isn't even a sub-story associated with it in this game. I still spent like 40 minutes just doing all the baseball shit. Because uh, it's <laughs> like, I just like the baseball minigame. It's just a fun... So that's like, that's what I've been doing is like, I finished up every side thing I basically possibly can do outside of Mahjong in like gambling and Shogi. Um, I've done almost all the side, like all the mini games that I can do. I'm progress gated on the mini cart game. Um, I've done like all the fucking the optional dungeon. I've done all that shit. Um, and yeah, I just really am enjoying jumping around, doing all the optional stuff, um, leveling up my characters, changing the jobs. I basically am changing the jobs for my characters every time I get the two class skills associated with that job. So once they get to about level 20 or so, I switch to something else. Um, and it's a really, really compelling system because it reminds me a lot of Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth in that way of like, it really kind of, it, it pulls out that one part of JRPGs that's so much fun, which is leveling up. And it's just really fun to just like get a, to finish a battle and then have your character level up like eight times. Like that's just an incredible feeling. And Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth, like, you know, fucking like takes that and like extracts it out and shoots it up into your veins because you just leveling up 5 million Digimon every single fucking second. Um, and this is not to the extreme that Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth is, but I think the way that they handle the jump system, how easy it is to switch, um, the way the XP curve is handled where it is incredibly steep on the jobs. So you're like really incentivized to get every job up or like most jobs up for each character um, a fair bit in that early going because you can easily just spend like 10 minutes and get most of their jobs up to level like eight or so with the amount of XP I get from like two street fights. Um, and so that element, I've been really just kind of, kind of having a fun time exploring all of that. And I haven't pushed the main story much further past where I was last week. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy to hear all that. I'm excited to hear what you think about the, I feel like the final acts of this story are just, out of this world good so i'm very excited to see what you think of that if if you've been to osaka have you done the like arena yet then no i think that's what i'm like about to do um the arena's really fun i i had a lot of fun with it i if anything it could have been more challenging but it was a it's a it's a great play and then you can go grind and get stuff in it again and again and it i i spent a lot of time in that fucking arena (laughs) yeah that's like a yakuza classic that i'm excited to see how it plays in because yeah the, the arena that's usually it is usually in sotenbori um, it's a concept that's in most of these games. So I'm excited to see how it's different for the turn-based stuff. Um, I'm just happy to hear you're enjoying the, the turn-based stuff so much. Because you're the person here, obviously, who has, you know, hundreds of hours of experience with Yakuza as it used to exist. So that's the thing that's new to you. Whereas I had no preconceived notions other than I enjoy turn-based stuff. Yeah, so. I think it took a little bit for me to... Like, I enjoyed it in the early goings, but I think it, I was like almost a little bit uneasy about it just because I'm so used to what the other Yakuza games play like. Um, And the way it like kind of subtly changes a little bit of the feel of exploring the city. um, And it slows down the pace in a couple of places of the game. And it like got, took a while to get used to that combined with, as with any JRPG system, it takes a while for you to kind of like really ramp up and get like a wide range of abilities and then start fighting enemies that you need to exploit their weaknesses and that kind of stuff. Because that's why the job system's fun, because getting those class skills, you end up having this like really well-rounded party where no matter what party configuration you're using, you can cover such a wide range of like the elemental weaknesses and strengths and stuff that you might need. Um, and I think that's something that's a lot of fun that, again, it feels like a little bit like Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth, or it also, that element feels a lot like Persona 5 
Um, there's a lot of stuff in this game that I'm really willing to bet that because they're both owned by Sega, that they had some people from Atlas come over and consult on some of the stuff because the menus are very Persona 5-esque. Um, like a lot of that kind of stuff feels like it's pulling from some of the material that Persona 5 did um, while still being a little bit more Dragon Quest leaning in the overall like JRPG style of it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we will we will do a spoiler cast on it someday. <laughs> Should be next week. I I hopefully, you know, I'm I'm it would have been this week if it were not for a bunch of shit happened this week on Monday through Wednesday that like I was planning to spend a lot of time playing the game and then it didn't work out that way. So, you've got a ways to go if you're only just in Osaka though. So, I'm I'm curious how how long. I I although but like there's really like there can't be almost any side stuff for me to do because I've done like 44 yeah. of the 51 sub stories in the game. So, it's like I yeah. imagine that I will like probably like push through that stuff pretty quick if I'm again, like maybe that that works differently because of the JRPG side of it, but like in a normal Yakuza game, this is the point where it, like it seems like or like I feel like normally I'd be like, "Oh, I probably actually have a fairly bit left and then i end up like playing the whole game in like a monster session for like seven hours and then get all the way to the end like that's kind of feels yeah. like i'm almost at that point is what it feels like to me with the oxygen seven it depends on how you play it so yeah, yeah we'll see um anyway more on that later uh do you want to talk about resident evil village really quick just yes. some first impressions on this game uh-huh fuck yeah fuck fuck holy fuck 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 holy fucking fuck holy fuck fuck sean Resident Evil Village is good. Yeah, this is a great fucking game. I'm having a phenomenal time with it. So you said you finished the Dimitrascu Castle area? Yes. Okay, yeah. So I've I'm like past the I finished the second area in the game and then did all the stuff in the village after that. Because the basic structure of the game is you you end up in the village at the beginning, it's which is kind of almost like your hub world. Um, and then there are four areas with like four bosses and I assume there's like the fifth boss area because they introduce you to the different bosses very early on in the game. And then like each time you go and do one of those areas, you come back to the village and new elements are unlocked because you found different items and stuff. And some of the stuff in the village has changed a little bit. Um, and yeah, so I've kind of done that loop twice now and holy shit, this game is fucking good. It's amazing. It's so... Like, okay, so so to put the baseline here, you and I really loved 7, yep. which is the immediate predecessor here, and and we've talked about it for a couple weeks here, and, and 7 is just a great reinvention of sort of back-to-basics meat and potatoes, like Resident Evil 1 slash 2 exploration survival horror, you know? Yeah. Um, that gets kind of crazy and action-y, but in, in a way like I would say 2 does at the end, not so much 1, um, but but 2 definitely does near the end. Um, and it's phenomenal, and we love Resident Evil 7. So this one, I guess my overall thesis on it so far is it feels in the, in the best way possible, I mean this in the best way possible, like Resident Evil Greatest Hits. Like, this feels like it is checking every box of the things I love over the life of this series. Like, it has things of, like, Go explore a big empty, or not empty, but like scary castle, like Resident Evil 1. Go do that. You know, Resident Evil 2, uh, the the, the kind of like, um, you know, grimy horror you get in some of that. The sort of action with like horror elements of someone like stalking you around like 3. And then of course it borrows a ton from Resident Evil 4. Uh, and then all within a system that's very much like Resident Evil 7. It's just like, so far this game is scratching 
every itch of all the different ways I love Resident Evil, but in one game. And that is amazing to me. Uh, and that's why I'm loving it just so fucking much. Yeah, I think definitely the game it most resembles is 4. Like, it feels a lot to me like them taking the like the foundation they built with Resident Evil 7, which much more closely, like, reflects the first, the original Resident Evil game, and kind of try to create a similar effect in a more modern first-person horror, survival horror game. And this feels like something similar, but let's take a lot of, like, the more action gothic horror thing that 4 did, um, because particularly through the area you've been so far, I think it gets... The second area of the game is much more intensely horror-focused in a way I was kind of um, surprised by, and I think it's very effective. Um, but, like, that whole, like, the beginning of the game through to the end of the Lady Dimitrescu area, who's the giant vampire lady that everybody loves on Twitter, um, that whole stretch is, like, so Resident Evil 4 in the best way possible. And it's like you have, like, you have the shopkeep, and you have weapon upgrades, and you have, you know, if you shoot the fucking crows, they drop money. Um, like, it's so Resident Evil 4-esque in, like, a lot of, like, little details. You know, you have little shining trinkets that are on, like, areas in the environment that you shoot with your gun and they drop and you pick it up and you sell it. And you have some yes. that you get that you then can combine together instead of selling them immediately. And then it's a more valuable trinket to sell to the shopkeep. Like, it is so Resident Evil 4-influenced. Um, and Resident Evil 4. Sean, you have the item cache. You have the briefcase yes. that you play item Tetris with. When I got... So you get to the top of the tower and you get... Uh, minor spoiler. You get your sniper rifle. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time where it said, Hey, you don't have enough room. And I saw that and I was like, I get to play item Tetris again, which is one of my favorite things in Resident Evil 4. Good God, I love this series. Yeah. Yeah. So it definitely is like taking that and it's so satisfying it's just such a fun game to play because it's kind of blown up the much more kind of focused i mean you know it's still a very focused game relative to what most modern AAA games are which is something i love about it but compared to resident evil 7 which is a very like fairly short very focused like not very broad game it's got like you know four areas basically in it and none of them are like very huge like i feel like the castle feels like in terms of geography or geometry it feels like it's the size of like the entire first half of Resident Evil 7. Um, oh, easily. Yeah, yeah, easily. So Resident Evil 7 so focused. So kind of like blowing that out and like really giving you this much more kind of like extravagant gameplay loop by having currency systems and stuff like that. Um, it just feels like it's such an addicting game to play that then that sense of like there's always like another upgrade for you to buy or there's always like another thing around the corner there are a lot more there's a greater variety to enemy types because resident evil 7 kind of only has like three or four enemy types in the whole game which is fine for the very focused thing it is um but resident evil 8 definitely like blows that out a lot more um and i feel like you know i'm maybe about halfway through the game at this point and i'm continuing to encounter new things new enemies new surprises um in in this very resident evil 4-esque way like like if you really enjoyed resident evil 4 i think you'd enjoy resident evil village because it just is hitting all those same notes in a way um that i'm really impressed how much they're able to replicate what was good about 4 because i feel like there are very very few games that hit quite that balance of exploration and combat and and progression in those loops and like secrets and hidden things in the environment um this game is just hitting all those notes 100% for me. Resident Evil hasn't been yeah. able to hit it before. Like, I played 5 this week. Maybe I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, and 5 is, like, the direct sequel to 4 that takes a lot of those mechanics and does not do it well. Yeah. 
and like it just misses the point in so many ways and and this game yeah gets it 100% but I really do like want to stress again like how much it, it also I feel like is building in things from other Resident Evils like just the sheer batshit insanity of some of what happens in the game like so far like one of my reactions to it is just how like high tension it is like yeah. it's not scary in the way Resident Evil 7 or 1 are scary but it is like high stress I feel like so I have played five hours I I it's it's a little weird because my play clock is a little over three but I did start the game in hardcore and I found that impossible and so I had to like restart it um so I've played a little more and I also like went around and I was checking some like PC settings so there's some extra time on the clock but like in all the time I've played it so far, I just feel like there has not been a down moment. And I mean that in the best way possible. Like, there's just always something coming at you that is, like, surprising or intriguing. Or there's an upgrade. Or there's a new area. And there's a new visual idea. And there's a new enemy idea. And there's a new challenge. And it's just always got me on my feet wondering, what is the next terrible thing that is going to happen to Ethan Winters? And by extension, me, the player. And a lot of terrible things happen to Ethan Winters. And by extension, me, the player. Um... And it is just constantly keeping you guessing. The fucking set piece when you meet Mother Miranda and the four lords of the village and what happens after that is, like, left me literally breathless. Like, Jesus Christ, what did I just watch? Like, and that's something that, like, like, 4 definitely has some of those moments, but I feel like 4 is a little more grounded. And this one just lets its freak flag fucking fly in a way that, that I love when Resident Evil does. And it is just such a celebration of like creativity in a way that i honestly most often associate with like nintendo platformers for like the level of like just invention you'll put in a game and this game is a very different kind of thing but it has that kind of feeling of like a good mario game of just throwing ideas at you left and right that are so cool to see do you know what i mean yeah absolutely have you like done all the stuff in the village after you finish the castle no, I got yeah. I finished the castle and then saved at the typewriter. Yeah, because I think that's one of the things that's interesting about the structure is, um, like that's the moment where it, the game gives you like your first real space to breathe is you finishing the castle and then going back to the village and like you explore the village for a while to like get access to the next area you need to go and stuff like that. Um, yeah, because it's definitely that whole ramp up. It, yeah, it's very intense and part of what the game is doing. Um, particularly in that section from the very beginning of the game through to the end of the castle is it's a it's it's playing off of different kinds of horror than what seven does um, in that like most Resident Evil does where it's much more it's a, it's very like hammer horror movie influenced I think in it's like a gothic horror kind of direction like it's a little bit over the top it's fairly extreme um, it's pulling from classic horror monster archetypes like werewolves in vampires, which is something that Resident Evil, as far as I can remember, has never done. Like, I don't think they've ever done vampires and werewolf shit before. Um, it's it's no, always been really. either zombies or, like, monsters, right? Like, the Las Plagas in Resident Evil 4 are not, like, zombie zombies, but they're basically zombies, and then they turn into Resident Evil tentacle things, right? Like, that's very much like the Resident Evil thing is they it starts as some sort of zombie-esque monster... And then by the end, they turn into giant, crazy, world-destroying fucking creatures. Um, and here, you get some of that. You definitely, you know, do. You, there was a very funny tweet I saw. I think it's Imran Khan. It's someone in the uh, game press saw, had a tweet a while ago when Lady Damatresk was, like, very popular on Twitter. 
um, and saying it's like, everyone loves her now, but just wait until she turns into a giant, like, tentacle vagina monster because it's a Resident Evil game. And it's like, I don't feel like it's a spoiler to say, yeah, that's, yes, like, she's a Resident Evil boss, right? Like, you have the Resident Evilness to it. But you still have, like, pretty straight for a lot of the sections of the game, just, like, straight up, these are just, like, werewolf, like, wolfman man dudes. They're not even, like, werewolf werewolves. They're more, like, classic wolfman-type enemies um, and, like, these vampire ladies um, that are very much, like, brides of Dracula kind of characters. Um, and that lends a very different kind of horror um, where you feel like you are being actively hunted by enemies, right? Instead of it being this, like, kind of mindless unknowable creatures like the zombies or the molded in resident evil 7 these are the wolves or vampires or characters that are like actively seeking you out to like eat you and kill you um and that's a very different kind of feeling to the horror and a different kind of intensity or particularly that early section when you really don't have a lot of tools to fight the wolfman in the village like it is this feeling of like you are in the shrubs like being hunted um, I'm playing with headphones with the PS5 3D audio, which is very, very effective for this game. And so having, like, the feeling of, like, things are always around you, um, kind of stalking you. Um, there's something around every corner. That is a very different kind of tension to the combat and the horror than something Resident Evil has typically done. That is most similar to some of the stuff in 4, but is even is fairly distinct from that as well. Yeah, it's... And, like, the way they mix, like, the enemies with the environments they're in. So, like, Mm. the wolfmen being things that, like, stalk you through, like, the tall, like, fucking weeds and grass in the village. And you can't quite know exactly where they're coming from or see them through that. And it is almost like some of this, like, Midsommar. Some of that kind... Or, like, the Wicker Man. Like, that Mm. kind of, like, naturalistic horror I feel like you get in the village is... I mean, Resident Evil has always been... Like a, a rag that like like a sponge that you know like soaks up cultural influences yeah. you know and it's it's why in Resident Evil Five you know Wesker is Neo from the Matrix or something right <laughs> uh-huh. and and um and and in Seven you know is is Saw and it is PT and all these other like yeah, horror like influences found footage the, horror and that kind of stuff yeah exactly and I feel like Village obviously is taking from maybe this resurgence in the sort of wicker man genre of like you know outdoor daylight horror you know um, that you've gotten from some of like the Ari Aster stuff or the Vavitch um, you know very much a that, that's the witch by the yes. way it's you know, you know what I mean um, and like I, I love seeing that they're very you know fast on their toes with that but man it is it is a really amazing game and it is also production value wise one of the most impressive things I've ever fucking seen mm-hmm. like because I thought Resident Evil 7 was a Gorgeous is the wrong word. Uh, it's a gnarly masterpiece that has incredible graphic fidelity. I'll put it that way. Um, and just some of the best like art direction I've ever seen in a video game. And then Village eats its fucking lunch. Like it's amazing yeah. how like diverse and impressive the production design is. That castle is one of the most detailed gaming locations I've ever gone through. And just the graphical fidelity is off the charts. Um, it's insane, Sean. Yeah, it is, like, particularly the interiors, which was true of Resident Evil 7 as well. Like, they, they have a quality to them that can feel uncanny. Um, yeah. Like, that's... I talked about this, I think, last week, about the HDR in Resident Evil 7 being, like, some of the most effective usage of it I've ever seen. Um, and that, like, continues to be true in 8. Again, particularly on the inside, um, where it's like, yeah, that castle, you walk into some rooms and it's just, like, the amount of detail you can see on everything in like both in terms of like 
the care from an art design perspective on having like items strewn about the room and stuff like that that like makes it feel like a lived in space like i love how much that castle feels like it is this castle where it feels like these vampire ladies like used to kind of care a little bit to keep up appearances and over the decades kind of stopped caring about that to the point where it's just like it's these like sloppy vampire ladies that just like throw their like clothes on the floor and they don't like they just don't give a shit um like they don't care that anybody knows that they're vampires anymore they've killed all the maids and turned them into like weird like mindless drones in their like blood flooded basement and shit like that um and the amount of detail if you like you can just feel that so much in the environment through the art direction and then that is realized with this just like incredibly extravagant feeling um production uh, in terms of like the technical production of it um so i'm playing you're playing it on the pc i'm playing it on ps5 um on ps5 it targets 60 frames per second um as far as i can tell it hits it really really well it's only if you're outside in the village and you're running like across the whole thing like in a like a beeline to get like from one area on the side of the map to the other you can feel it hitch up a little bit um other than that it runs incredibly well even with the ray tracing setting on which is not like the ray tracing is not as noticeable as it is in something like Miles Morales, but if you flip it on and off, you can definitely tell. Oh yeah, it's like it makes the lighting feel a lot more naturalistic. Um, particularly that has a lot of impact on the outside areas in particular. Um, and yeah, it just has this really high quality technical production to it, um, which is so. It's it just feels so nice and refreshing to have that level of technical production in a game that is as focused as this is in a space where like the AAA market as much as i really enjoy like big crazy giant rpgs and like open world action games and like you know that like this is a 100 hour long video game i've enjoyed a lot of those but it feels like it's becoming so scarce to get something that has this level of production to it and also is like this is like a dozen hour video game at max on like one playthrough um and and who gives it and it doesn't have to have multiplayer it doesn't have to like it games as a service element so you're not like buying currency or whatever it just is what it is like that is so refreshing so refreshing um yeah i it, it is so i'm playing it on pc as i said um and it, it runs obviously very well it's the the, the re engine just as we've said scales yeah. so well to different things um i'm playing it on pc so that uh, for two reasons one because i just prefer keyboard and mouse for fps stuff now um but also uh, i'm traveling soon and uh, if i wanted to like play it a second time or whatever it's easier for me to bring my laptop than my ps5 yeah for reasons you can probably imagine uh-huh. um <laughs> true of any console but the ps5 is a real big one um yeah so i'm having a blast with it there the only it, it runs well it does it's interesting compared to resident evil 7 resident evil 7 had a pretty constant frame rate up in like near 160 for me i'm running on an rtx 2070 max q on my laptop um village is all over the place because it is like has so many different kinds of environments like i've seen the frame rate has gone up to like 190 for some indoor areas and as low as about 70 for some heavy areas um, and it's totally playable. The one thing I've had, and I wanted to ask you about this, is my PC does not like the moments with Lady Domestruku, however you say her names, uh, big step on me lady's daughters when they have all the flies and they like buzz and mm-hmm. it's just like this incredible amount of visuals. Like literally the game like hitches for a second and then they'll just be up in my face and I don't see the in-between moments and the frame chart just goes like all over the place, like down to like 20 and then back up to 90. It's crazy. 
Yeah, I have not had any performance issues with that on the PS5. Okay. Like, again, the only thing I've seen that hits the, hitches the performance at all is traveling very quickly across the vi- open area, village area, is the only time I've seen any detectable frame rate. Yeah. And, like, I didn't watch all of the Digital Foundry video because I didn't want to, like, see any of the later areas in the game yet um, because I want those to be a surprise. But, like, I read the, like, general summary and it seems like on console like that just like kind of proves true that other than some outside areas where things get very busy and if you're moving very quickly even with the ray tracing on setting it generally just holds at a solid 60 and then if you want it to have like a perfect 60 on console if you turn that ray tracing off it seems like it never drops at all yeah that's what i've seen too and i imagine that's just because on console you can optimize it better and they've like optimized it very very well and i think on pc just it's it's going to be more variable um so if you're going to play on pc that's the only thing i've seen that was like it doesn't make it unplayable or anything i wish it didn't happen but otherwise it's totally fine um and it, it seems like probably will run on a wide range of hardware which is good um especially if like you don't care about going up because the other thing i could do if i we're playing this on my TV. I could just lock it to 60 and it would mm-hmm. be, I'd never have to worry about it because it doesn't go below 60. Um, but on with with a mouse, like you want like 120 is, is feels a lot better, um, which I thought I would never get to mm-hmm. that place, Sean, but I do genuinely now notice. The, God, you notice I the high so frame rates. I desperately for... want to just get a bunch of old clips of this podcast to just play to you right now or you talk shit about it. I know, I know. Like that Persona yeah, 4 one was the most hilarious shit. Yeah, no, I know. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I'm a, I'm a, I don't, you know, it's, it's people change, Sean, people change. Um, but no, I'm having fun. I, I honestly, I think when this game inevitably is on sale for like 20 bucks, I will probably pick it up on PS5 as well, just so I can like experience it in like 4k HDR. Mm-hmm. Um, I could put it out on my TV through my PC. I just don't know if I could get the resolution that high. Um, cause like my PC is built for the screen is 1080p and it's yeah. a, it's a beautiful screen on my PC, but like everything's kind of optimized for that. Um, and obviously I don't have HDR on this screen. It, it makes up for it for me in other ways, obviously, but I would love to, to see some of what it's doing there. Um, yeah. So. One thing I will say about the PS5 version, uh, is that it makes the best use of the adaptive triggers since uh astro's playroom for me really yeah. that's cool i didn't even know it did anything yeah so it's only for like shooting um so it's uh you know it's basically depending on which gun you're using it'll have a slightly different profile um but generally speaking with the pistol there's like it's basically the left trigger aim with the pistol is just a, a normal pull there's almost no resistance on it at all but you have that um like pull in a little bit and you feel it stop and then you pull through the stop on the right trigger to shoot um, and that place is different for each gun, like how much of a trigger pull and how much resistance there is. And then for the rifles, there's also alternating resistance for the L2 to aim. Um, that makes them feel heavier. Uh, and you particularly notice it when you get the sniper rifle where that is even heavier than the shotgun. Um, and it's like, you know, I've played a couple of games or like mess around with stuff that does that. Um, like they're like some free-to-play games like Warframe I downloaded just entirely to see what it does with the adaptive triggers because there weren't that many games that did it at launch um and this is by far of the handful of games i've played including like hitman and stuff that uses the triggers for like gun stuff this is by far the most well dialed in like it feels so like tight the windows at where it like tightens up the amount to which it tightens up how like thoroughly it tightens up because i think the one thing with hitman that i like it and i like what the adaptive triggers do but they don't keep the pressure up quite enough when you pull through that like stop point and so it feels a little cheaper there and a little bit like clickier 
Um, here, it just has this very satisfying kind of meaty pull. And it, every element of the adaptive triggers just feels dialed in so perfectly. Um, it is very, very satisfying to use. Um, it's this very tactile feeling, which already That's like cool. it has a very tactile feeling element to the shooting because like any survival horror game, you know, you are trying to like, you, every shot feels so important um, and so significant because you don't want to waste ammo. And I feel like that, there's something about the physicality of it there that like really kind of like amplifies that. That's awesome. That's really cool. Does it do any good haptic stuff too? Um, it, it feels like it fairly normal haptic stuff. Like I haven't noticed. Okay. Doesn't have anything that's like gimmicky. Like it definitely is like right. more nuanced force feedback than you get in like a PS4 game. But it's not like you can feel the raindrops or something like an Astro's Playroom. Yeah, I assume it loads lightning fast on PS5. Oh yeah, yeah. You don't notice loads yeah. at all. Um, so like I, you know, I'm jumping between this and Yakuza Seven, and like I barely even notice that it has loaded. Um, also one thing that is like nice having just played through resident evil 7 backwards compatible on ps5 which does have load, notable load times and it also like noticeably takes time to save the game in the backwards compatible version of resident evil 7 in resident evil 8 on ps5 you like you just i keep because i've like you know i you know played through resident evil 7 so recently every time i go to save at the typewriter or whatever i keep on expecting a little loading bar to pop up and like taking like a second or two and instead it's just like immediately it's done i'm like oh wait i can just keep on playing the game great that, what's funny is that's exactly my experience on PC. So PC, it sounds like it's pretty much in parity there because it loads lickety-split. It's like the fastest loading PC game I've played. So it seems like all the work they do for this on PS5 does it. Because I've got like an SSD in, in here, obviously, yeah. too. It's probably not as fast as the bespoke thing in the PS5. But it loads very fast. It saves instantaneously. And Resident Evil 7 was not on either of those. It took a while to load and to save. Um, so that's that's kind of... it's It's been cool to see that as well. So... Just a very well optimized game all around, clearly. Um, so I'm I'm so happy, Sean, that this game is out, and I cannot wait to play more of it. It's so good. Yeah, it's better than I expected. Like it, it is exactly what I wanted. Like I so like wanted Resident Evil Seven, like for a sequel to that game, to kind of blow it up a little bit and give me like bigger areas, more weapons, like some like more yeah. elaborate progression mechanics, and they have all that in here and they have sexy vampire ladies and they have werewolves and like you know you're about yes. to get to the creepy doll area next so enjoy that oh god because um, yeah. i will say these games do a number on me sean like this is I, I know this game is not as like horror horror but like it's still i have had a couple of jumps like the way seven and eight do gore generally like mm -hmm. freaks me out um ethan's fucking hands yeah I don't want to spoil it. We'll do it next week. But poor Ethan's fucking hands. It fucks me up, Sean. And I just, like, now you're saying creepy dolls. Like, because there's also something playing this mouse and keyboard at my desk, like, hunched over right up on the screen. And, like, your hand on the mouse just feels a little more intimate for movement than, like, your yes, thumb on a stick. It is, it is freaky shit, Sean. It is fucked up. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a first-person shooter. So it's like, what's the thing you see all the time? You see his hands. So what has to happen? Yes. His hands got to get fucked the fuck up. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I will say, like, I think, you know, you know, different people have different, like, tolerances for different kind of horror. So it's going to be very much personal preference. Like, I would say this game, definitely that whole section that you've played through so far is a lot lighter horror than 7. I mean, it's slightly different. It's like, it's a very tense um in a like a gameplay sense because of how vulnerable you feel and all that but it and then you have some stuff with later damage rask where like you have like the chasing like invincible enemy chasing you kind of stuff of like seven and, and uh, three and stuff like that and mr x and two um and so that has some of that 
Um, but it definitely did not, up to that point, have anything that felt as, like, potently horror as the first two hours of Resident Evil 7, which are, like, pretty intense. Um, but then I got to the area you're about to get to, and that is, like, I think that is it's the most effective, like, straight-up horror stuff they have done in the whole fucking franchise. Um, that oh might be okay. partially, like, it is hitting a couple of, like, buttons that are, like, particularly effective for me. Um, so I don't know if it will do, be, do the same thing for you, but I found, because I played through that whole section last night. Also, it was like it was like the perfect time because also last night we had a big thunderstorm in Colorado. So it was like storming outside. I had my fucking headphones on, but like the thunder was loud enough that I could still tell it was thunder outside. But the 3D audio is sometimes very uncanny in a way that like I had a moment when I was in like the attic of the castle where I was like convinced that it was like raining or windy outside or something in real life because of the sound of like the wooden roof creaking over my head. And then when I went to go to the bathroom, I took my headphones off. I realized that that was not the case at all. That was just the audio of the game. I was like, oh, that's fucking creepy. Um, I've had a similar reaction playing both seven and eight now with, with headphones on. It's the sound design in these games is off the charts. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so I am I am excited to, to play more of this and be scared, um, like that. The the fucking saw stuff in there's that section in the middle of seven where it's basically just like an excerpt from Saw mm-hmm. where like you're doing a whole trap maze. That is, I loved that part of seven. That was yeah. so good. That's that part is I think the part where my head cannon of Ethan being this is like this indomitable badass that just goes around and murders everything really formed fully because the idea <laughs> this is like spoilers for the middle of Resident Evil Seven, but it's an old game. But like the, the the way that's all set up of where you watch the videotape of a guy going through it and he dies at the end and there's no way to, for that guy not to die. And then Ethan goes in and you start doing the same thing. And then you, the player realizes like, wait, I know how this goes. Like, I think it's when you have to put in like the key to the pass, the password or something. It was like, oh, I already know what the fucking password is. Cause I watched that video yes. it, and I met, did he change the password and he had it. It's like loser, um, which is a very funny password because Lucas is a fucking dick. And then you just and then you just walk through the rest of that area like you're like fucking you've seen the future or some shit from Lucas's perspective. And it's so it just makes you feel so powerful. And that dynamic is very much at play here in eight as well of like you have that buildup of where like you feel so vulnerable, like you are like being pushed into a corner. There's nothing you can do. Um, and you're just like experiencing like indignity after indignity as a character, like either like bodily or psychologically, you're being like tortured or pressed in some way. And then near the end of that section, it flips and you become the person that is now like, I'm hunting you down. Like I'm going to murder, I'm going to murder everyone. I'm going to murder your daughters. I'm going to murder you. I'm going to burn this fucking castle to the ground. I'm going to destroy everything you know and care about because you fucked with me and mine. I'm Ethan Winters. I'm like a dude from like Louisiana or some shit. I'm just going to find you. I'm going to fucking kill you. Um, and there's something about that arc as a character that is, that is not like something they lean on. I think they do a little bit of it with the characterization of him a little bit. But it's more just, I think, the experience of a player of being pushed and stressed so much by the game. And then you're like, and now I have a sniper rifle and fuck you. Um, that is an incredibly potent feeling. And it's like Resident Evil is one of the only video game franchises that does this. Because most horror stuff never wants you to have like the triumphant arc at the end. They want to keep the pressure up. Resident Evil is one of those that's like, it's schlocky enough, it's B-movie enough, that it wants you to feel pressured and intense in, like, horror, and then it wants you to overcome it and feel triumphant as a player, and it feels so fucking good every time. I agree 100%, and Ethan, 
I just there's something about doing the like Resident Evil stuff, but like dialed to eleven because seven and eight are off the charts yes. with all the crazy stuff they do. But having an everyman with no connection to Resident Evil go through it is perfect for yes. me. It's like such a great combination because like especially by the time you get to like five and six, you're dealing with characters who have seen this shit a billion times, mm-hmm. right? Like, Chris is old hat at this stuff. And so it's so fun to do it with someone who's a total blank slate. It's great. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah and then, yeah. And then by the end, it's like, I've just, like, murdered a crazy zombie dragon vampire thing. <laughs> like, I just, like, the shit he does, does is so incredible. Um, yes. And it, it just makes you feel so good as a player. It does. Um, can I talk briefly about playing Resident Evil 5? Yes, I really want to hear about your experiences of playing. Because I, I thought you would never actually do it. Like, I, I remember trying to convince you to at least watch the ending of the game on YouTube because I thought you'd find the ending so funny. Um, and you you had dropped it. Yeah, so so to remind people, I played last year Resident Evil's 1, 2, 3, 4, the remakes of 1, 2, 3, and then 4... And I played, uh, and then I went and played some other like Capcom and games from these people. Like I went on to some platinum stuff too. Um, but I started playing five, and f- I still contend five in single player is an unplayable game. Mm-hmm. Like it is bad. It is like not designed to be played that way. The AI is so bad that there are there are literally some parts I don't know how you do without a partner. Like I and I've looked it up, and like people are like, yeah, it's tough and stupid, and you have to like do all this stuff because Shiva is terrible as an AI. Um, because if you don't know, Resident Evil 5, very much designed from the ground up for co-op. Yeah. Um, but what I finally did is, so I have been, so my brother and I finished last week playing all the Halo games on PC. That was kind of our co-op. Just when we hang out, we, we played Halo co-op and we played all of the Master Chief Collection. So Reach, 1, 2, 3, ODST, 4, we did all of them. So then we needed something new to play and he'd been hearing me talk about Resident Evil and I said, Thomas, you should play 5 with me because it's co-op and we could do that. And, and and he he was convinced, although he would not dig his... So I have it on Xbox. He would not dig his Xbox out to play with me on Xbox. So I had to buy it for him and me on PC. Um, but the thing about PC games, Sean, that's great, is there's sites like CD Keys where they will just sell you keys that they found on the back of a truck. And so I got two copies of Resident Evil 5 for $8. Um, the other fun thing about PC sometimes, though, is that you run into stuff like... So Resident Evil 5 on PC was built for games for Windows Live. Oh, great. So to... So to play it now, you have to... Because Games for Windows Live's games won't launch in Windows 10 mm-hmm. um, at all. Like, they will give you an error code. So, but there's a fan patch that just literally... You, like, drag one thing out of the fan folder and put it into the folder where Resident Evil is installed, and now Games for Windows Live is gone. <laughs> and it's integrated with Steam. So it's gone. It's great. And then Resident Evil 5 runs totally fine for a modern PC game. It's locked at 60 because that's how, like, all the animations are done. But it's it actually looks very nice. Um, so we played the whole game co-op. And I will say, Resident Evil 5 Co-op is a fun game. It is it is not a great game. It has all sorts of problems. Yeah. But, like, I do enjoy... Like, there are very, very few games that are this rigorously designed for co-op. Like, to the degree of, like, it's like Portal 2's co-op mode, right? Mm-hmm. Where, like, it literally shouldn't be an option to let you play it in single player because it is so made for co-op. And, like... The fun of just, like, you and a friend, and in this case, me and my brother, like, making jokes because it's this B-movie kind of thing, you know, and, like, trading equipment and, like, figuring out, okay, you're going to have the sniper rifle, I'll have the, I'll, I, I, like, I used a handgun for most of the game because I'm, I just know the Resident Evil handgun and you get a ton of ammo, but, like, at a certain point he wanted to use other guns and they give you very limited inventory space, so really you want to divvy up your guns and, like, then you can pass each other ammo and you can heal each other and all this stuff. It's, it's, it's that element of the game is well-designed. 
and it is just the shooting mechanics from Resident Evil 4 pulled wholesale. I think the level design doesn't always do that favors because I think the game wants to be faster paced yes. and bigger in a way that Resident Evil 4's mechanics don't really support. And that is not a knock on Resident Evil 4. That's a knock on 5 for not quite getting it all the time. But overall, it's fun. The environments are pretty varied. There's some stuff in the middle of the game that, like, genuinely the middle chapters, I think, are very good. Um, just in terms of your basic meat and potatoes, go around shooting zombies level design. You know, Chris is a fun character. He's a big, you know, dumb blonde guy. In, in this game, he is very much a big dumb meathead because he's yes. always going, like, a zombie will appear and he'll go, what is that? And I'm like, Chris, you more than anyone in this series knows what that is. Yeah. Shut up. You dumb idiot. Is that a zombie? Um, is it Las Plagas? Like, like, is it a walker? Like, what are we using for this one? Yeah. So, that's all fun. Um, and I think the game breaks down near the end because there are two boss fights in particular that are just awful. Uh -huh. There's one with this, like, monster down in the basement that is the most tankiest tank mm -hmm. in the history of tanks that takes forever. Thomas and I were convinced we were doing something wrong because it would just go on for like half an hour. He wouldn't die. And then finally, we just ran out of ammo and, and resources and died. And it was over. And then finally, we looked up and like, no, he's just a tank. But then someone said, you know, you could just buy a rocket launcher. And you do. You buy the rocket launcher and then you kill it in one hit. Yeah. It's great game design. Great game design. Uh, and then the final boss, Wesker, which is like this two-phase boss fight, is one of the worst things I've ever played in a video game. Like, I would put that with, like, Sonic 06 among the worst stuff I've ever played because it is very much that old philosophy of boss fights where a boss fight shouldn't have anything to do with anything you've learned in the game so far. What it should be is a puzzle from the developers of what are you supposed to do in what is essentially a scripted sequence where you don't have the script. Yeah. And so you just have to figure out what the fuck do I do? And you have to look up guides and do all this shit and then like maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. There's a bunch of quick time events. The quick time events in Resident Evil 5 are very much they will work when they want to work and no other time. Um, and it took forever and was awful and frustrating. Um, but overall, I enjoyed the game. And the story, yes, is absolutely nuts. Um, the uh, the stuff with Jill yeah. is crazy. I think you thought it was at the end, and it's not actually. You get the big flat. Like, like what were you specifically wanting me to see? Um, I guess I, yeah, because I mean, I played this game co-op with my friend in high school. Um, and that's the only yeah. time I played it, because as you have said, it is like virtually, I mean, it's not unplayable as a single player game. You just wouldn't want to play it as a single player game. It's a bad single player game, which is a questionable choice um, to do that with your big Resident Evil franchise if you're Capcom. Um, but yeah, so I don't remember exactly if it was at the end or not, but just the entire reveal about Jill, what she looks like, like, and it's really, it's almost yes. like 90%. It's just what she looks like in that game tells you everything about that game. It's like they completely redesigned her character to look like sexy blonde lady who has been like mind wiped by a parasite or some shit from Wesker. Um, and yes. it's so awful. You actually get it pretty early. You get the whole scene in like the mansion where they track down Wesker and then she like dives with him out of a window and like they seemingly both die, but then they're both back. And then Jill is running around in a fucking like plague mask, a plague doctor mask. Um, but yeah, the reveal is like maybe chapter four or something. Um, there's, I think there's six chapters and it's amazing when, when you, so Jill goes from being a brunette with like short hair and like in kind of military garb to sexy blonde lady with blonde hair and it is just i did a twitter thread on this and i am right it's just zero suit samus like it is 
like to the point where Nintendo probably could sue if they wanted to. Because it is just, like, especially if you compare it to, so Resident Evil 5 is 2009, Metroid Prime 3 Corruption is 2007. If you take Zero Suit Samus from Metroid Prime 3 and put her next to uh, Jill in Resident Evil 5, it's identical, Sean, other than that Samus doesn't have, like, a cutout for cleavage, because mm -hmm. obviously they did that in Resident Evil. But it's like, the, the bust size is the same, the hair is the same length and shade and, like, flows out in the same direction. Her face has been redesigned to look like that. And the funniest thing in the whole game, Sean, is that there's several moments where, like, you'll see a picture of a blonde lady, and Chris will go, Jill? And I, as the player, will go, No. No? What? Who? And so it's relying on you recognizing Jill, but she doesn't look anything like Jill at all. It's hilarious. It's so stupid. Yeah, it's just, it's one of the most just like incomprehensible things I've ever seen in like a main big budget video game like that. It's just, you can't understand how or why. Like if you wanted to, to sexy her up, like I think it would be dumb, but I would understand why it's like a cliche. Oh, we made the, like the female character a villain and so she has to be sexy like whatever but completely changing the way the character physically looks her hair color the size of her hair her facial structure everything to make her utterly unrecognizable as the character you're supposed to be referencing i just don't i like i can't understand how that decision got made like why would you completely change the way she looks to the point where yes like the main thing i remember is playing that game with my friend and then that character walking out, and then Chris saying Jill, and me being like, what the fuck are you even talking about? That's not Jill Valentine. Anyone who knows anything about Resident Evil would look at this and say, that's not fucking Jill Valentine. Yeah, and any version of Jill Valentine. Yeah. like like Because obviously, this is a character who goes back to PS1 onto today. We have her from her PS1 model and her PS4 Resident Evil 3 remake model, right? Yeah. Neither one. Anything like this. She's just Zero Suit Samus. Because Resident Evil 5 really rips off a lot of stuff. Um, also, yes, the game is incredibly racist. We've talked about oh, yes. this before. It is, it's it's more like tone deaf than anything. Like, it is all set in Africa. So, you know, a bunch of the zombies are black. Which, in and of itself, is not a problem. What it is, is the game is like the most teachable example of colorism I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Because the scarier a character is meant to be, the darker their skin color is. And then your partner, who is South African, is Sheva... And she has, like, very, very light black skin. But then all the evil zombies have really, really dark black skin. Yeah, not... I feel like someone at Capcom, we should have run that by, you know, someone to, like, yeah. see, like, hey, is this okay? Oh, it's not. Fuck. Yeah, because <laughs> you know. when did this game come out? Like, 2008, 2009? 2009. Yeah, because, like, this is, like, a marker for, like, how bad that shit is in that game. Is that you were talking about 2009 games media, which is not... 2021 games media um no. in terms of identifying that kind of stuff and criticizing those elements of games and even 2009 games media was like yo this is fucking racist like hey this is yeah. fucking this is very uncomfortable to play so here's one other funny thing about playing resident evil 5 so we played it on pc and i just started out playing it with my keyboard and mouse because it's just i have it here right yeah uh, and I thought, because it's got, it's got the Resident Evil 4 style aiming, so I thought that could actually be kind of fun with the mouse because you could be really precise, you know? No, because they fucked up the mouse controls and there's mm -hmm. no way to fix it. The, the mouse controls are reversed from what they should be. So in most games with any kind of like shooting mechanics, you want like your high DPI, high sensitivity on when you're just moving around and like running, you know, so that you can like do it, do fast movements and stuff, right? Yeah. 
And then when you like zoom in to aim, most games will have like this, like Halo has this setting where you can set the mouse sensitivity for when you're aiming down sights to be lower. Um, and uh, a lot of games do this. And then there's like people, you know, there's some gaming mice you can get that even have like what they call the sniper button where you hold it and it lowers your DPI for shooting. Uh, Resident Evil 5 does the exact opposite. When you are walking around in third person, you have a really low, like it's, you have to do these big swipes, even like moving my mouse to higher DPIs on the mouse. Like it's just really awkward and like these big heavy swipes. And then when you go in to aim, like when you, in the Resident Evil 4 style, you plant your feet and you just have to aim like it's an arcade game. Then it's like this crazy high mouse sensitivity that is like, it's impossible to aim effectively. And so both Thomas and I just wound up just grabbing our, you know, Xbox controllers and playing it that way. And it's fine. But like, that is such a basic mistake for like mouse and keyboard stuff. It's hilarious to me because otherwise it would have been fine. But like, yeah, it's really weird. I mean, you know, it's yeah, it's a PC port of a 2009 Japanese game. I would like, it's I'm fine. I'm impressed that the mouse even worked at all. Um, I would thought that that was, I was actually surprised to too, yeah. into the game. Yeah. So it's, it's not a problem. It's fine. And then of course, if you, you play it like that, then you just get all your Xbox 360 button commands, which was nice and nostalgic. I actually, I was playing with my Xbox elite controller and you can swap the um, sticks on that to the, what they call classic, which are 360 thumbsticks. And I played it with that just for maximum authenticity. And it was very good. Yeah. What about all the stuff where you like fight Wesker in a volcano and, and Chris like pushes the, like all that the shit boulder? at the end. Yeah. I remember that's being... the end. That's the terrible boss fight i was describing yeah i remember that shit just being you know resident evil gets ridiculous and a big scale in a lot of the games but like that was the one where i was like this is so like it's so far removed from anything that feels vaguely right you don't even have a giant crazy technical monster really it's like volcano shit and like superman out of like wesker it he does grow like big tentacle things out of his arms but it's only at the end and Everyone should, though, go look up the part where Chris has to push a boulder to let Shiva across. And it's, it's you start by, like, pushing, and then it's you start doing all the punching mechanics from right, the game. Yeah. So it's, like, hook, uppercut, jab, and you have to do all of those. And he's just, like, boxing the boulder to get it to move. It's very funny. Yeah, and this uh, is, now, nor like, I mean, you know, he's very strong and, like, trained as a special operative or whatever. But he's a normal person. It's He's just yes. a guy. He's not fucking <laughs> Superman or Captain America or some shit. No. So yeah, him like punching the boulder. It's just like, what is even happening? Yeah, his hands should be more fucked up than Ethan Winters. Exactly, yeah. It's, like, yeah, it's him and Ethan in a fucking bar and they both just have their hands bandaged to shit. Um, someone has to like, <laughs> you know, feed their drinks basically to them because they can't hold the fucking cups. It's like, what did you do? I fought like vampires and werewolves. What did you do? I punched a boulder for an hour. <laughs> okay, great. Did you ever wind up playing the Resident Evil 7 DLC? Um, yes. Okay. Yeah, the Not a Hero so, one. Yeah. Did you play the other one? Um, I haven't. No, I didn't get around to that one yet. There's two major 7 DLCs. Not a Hero with Chris and then there is... Um, End of Zoe with one of the other bakers. End of Zoe is fucking great. And and the main gimmick of End of Zoe is that you're playing as Jack, not Jack Baker, Joe Baker, who refuses to use a gun and just boxes. And so you're just punching out zombies and you can do these combos with like the left and right mouse button or trigger. Um, and it's like, and, and you're just punching the zombies to death. It's And then at the end you get a robot hand. Uh, it's fucking you should play it. It's really good. Yeah, I didn't have time to to. I didn't finish that up before eight came out. I was like, well, I'll come back to this after I yeah. finish eight. Um, yeah, it's it's great. I also really liked Not a Hero. I really liked doing Chris 
in the Resident Evil 7 yes. milieu, it was fun. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. A, good, it's a good little bite-sized piece of DLC, especially because it's free. So if people played yeah. 7 and never played that, they should check it out. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, I think that's it for this week. Uh, we'll be back at you next week. We'll At the very least, we'll do a big spoiler review of Resident Evil Village. Yeah. We might talk about Yakuza 7. We might do some other stuff. We'll see. But definitely more Resident Evil next week. Uh, and thank God, because I love this series to death, Sean. It's just so fucking good. <laughs>